Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this month's episode number 37 on ENT emergencies, we have with us Dr. Maria Ivankovic and Dr. Lior Summer. Dr. Ivankovic is an emergency physician at Credit Valley Hospital, Trillium Health Partners. She's a lecturer at the University of Toronto and an award-winning teacher. Dr. Summer is an emergency physician at St. Joseph's Health Centre and North York General Hospitals in Toronto. He did his undergraduate and residency training at the University of Toronto, where he now serves as the EM undergraduate electives representative. He's done extensive teaching at the undergraduate, postgraduate, and CME levels. ENT emergencies encompass a whole range of entities from the very common, epistaxis, pharyngitis, sinusitis, to name a few, to the relatively rare but debilitating or life-threatening, angioedema, malignant otitis externa, sudden sensory neural hearing loss, and epiglottitis. When it comes to the common ENT emergencies, it seems that even something as simple as pharyngitis is managed slightly differently by different docs depending on which guidelines they follow or don't follow. When it comes to the rare but debilitating or life-threatening ENT emergencies, they can easily be missed with devastating consequences. Early epiglottitis is almost never obvious. Malignant otitis externa is something we don't often think about, and angioedema has a few proven treatments that we rarely use. With the help of Dr. Lior Summer, an experienced ED doc who runs workshops on ENT emergencies, and Dr. Maria Ivankovic, the best ENT lecturer I've ever seen, We'll review some of the guidelines for some of the common ENT emergencies, give you some procedural tips and tricks for epistaxis, nasal foreign bodies and peritonsillar abscess drainage, give you the newest on management of angioedema, and give you the tools to help you nail the diagnosis of the uncommon and easy-to-miss ENT emergencies like epiglottitis and malignant otitis externa. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Summer. Thank you. Dr. Summer and Dr. Ivankovic. Hello. All right, guys, let's uh, jump into the first case. A 55-year-old woman presents to the ED with a six-hour history of epistaxis of the right nair that has bled through the packing that she received at another hospital the day prior. There's been no recent trauma, she denies nose-picking, and has otherwise been well, with no bruising, gum bleeding, or GI bleeding. She has a history of hypertension and recurrent epistaxis, but does not have any other medical issues. On exam, she appears anxious and is repeatedly dabbing her nose with tissue paper. Her blood pressure is 185 on 110, heart rate is 105, and the rest of her vitals are normal. Up here in Canada, with our frigid climate, we see a ton of epistaxis, and way too often we see patients bounce back again and again with nosebleeds. Sometimes these patients take way longer than you expect to manage in the ED. There seems to be quite the practice variation in treating these patients. 
So let's get into talking about the best evidence-based and most efficient way to manage epistaxis. Dr. Ivankovic, many patients with epistaxis will have high blood pressure when they come in. Sometimes they have a history of high blood pressure, sometimes they don't, but it always seems like their blood pressure is high. What role does hypertension have in epistaxis, and should we be treating high blood pressure in the patient with epistaxis? And in this particular case, with the blood pressure of 185 on 110, would you treat this BP? So I'm glad you asked this, as this is still a very common misconception, and there is actually no evidence that hypertension triggers epistaxis. It's never been shown to be a direct cause. Usually the blood pressure is actually related to the anxiety from the nosebleed itself. So I would definitely not treat this patient's blood pressure. I would treat their anxiety if necessary with possibly giving them some Ativan. But most of the time I find it comes down after you've treated the bleed. Often the interventions that we do to treat epistaxis can be tremendously painful, Mm -hmm. uh, which also lead to a significant degree of hypertension. And often the nurses, for example, will call me back and say the patient's blood pressure is still 180 over 90. And I find giving them appropriate analgesia often will bring that down as well. Absolutely. That's a good point. Okay. Anxiolytics, proper pain management, but not treating the blood pressure directly. Exactly. Okay. So Dr. Summer, in your history taking, what do you ask the patients in order to sort out the cause of the epistaxis? Really, essentially, I want to know whether this is a straightforward nosebleed or whether there's something else here that I need to treat. I've basically stopped asking patients whether they pick their nose or not because nobody ever admits to it. (laughs) We all know that they pick their noses. Wait, I pick my nose. (laughs) (laughs) What I really want to know is, has a patient had any previous surgeries that may change my management? Has there been any significant trauma that's going to lead to a change in the management of their epistaxis? Or is there any kind of underlying coagulopathy or malignancy that's going to change the management of this particular epistaxis. Otherwise, I find the history is not that contributory. So Dr. Ivankovic, one of the reasons that patients bounce back with epistaxis is because the site of bleeding was not identified in the first place. Can you give us some tips on how to identify the site of the bleeding and your step-by-step management of anterior nosebleeds? Okay, so my stepwise approach to epistaxis basically is four steps. Number one, you have to visualize the bleed. Number two, anesthetize, and these often go together, which I'll explain in just a minute. Number three is cauterize, and the fourth is tamponize. So starting with step one, which is visualize, a lot of these times these bleeds have actually already stopped on their own while the patient was waiting in the waiting room, as the nurse typically shows them how to properly compress the cartilaginous part of their nose. So if you think it's actually already stopped, you can take a quick look with your nasal speculum. And if it's controlled, you actually may not have to do much aside from some polysporin or petrolatum and detailed discharge instructions. For those that are still bleeding or have lots of clot in the way, the first thing I ask them to do is blow their nose to clear out all of the clots and mucus. Then I'll soak some cotton pledgets with oxymetazolone, which is Dristan, one-to-one with some lidocaine. And the lidocaine helps if you're going to be cauterizing. And then I place them in the patient's nose with my bayonet forceps and ask them to clamp their nose. And usually at this point, I'll go and see another patient quickly and and leave them for about 10 minutes. You can use 4% cocaine instead of oxymetazolone, uh, but it does have greater risk of systemic reactions and it's more expensive. Uh, You could also use lidocaine with epi, uh, but there is some weak evidence that oxymetazoline is actually better than both cocaine and and epi. 
And phenylephrine is not recommended due to several reported deaths with its use in the OR. So the bottom line is, although stronger evidence is needed, oxymetazolone or Dristan is safer and cheaper than both cocaine or epi and may actually work better. So that's usually my go-to. And I've found cocaine is harder and harder to find in uh, immersion departments, especially when uh, Dr. Hellman's working there. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the other thing you have to. Or if you're working at St. Joe's. So once I've waited uh, five or ten minutes, I'll remove the pledgets and I'll use the nasal speculum to try and visualize the site of the bleed. And don't forget that there are a few different sizes of the nasal speculums. So make sure yours is appropriate for the patient and ensure you're opening the speculum in the upper lower direction, not side to side, which sometimes I see some of our residents doing. So once I actually see the site of the bleed, I'm at step three, which is cauterize if appropriate. One thing that I find when we leave the patient to clamp their own nose, often what I'll find is that the patient will hold their nose for a minute or two and the impulse is to check whether the bleeding is stopped. And, so true. And so the, the sustained pressure for 10 to 15 minutes is really a key component to get the bleeding to stop and get proper visualization. Usually I will either use a nasal clamp or I use four tongue depressors taped together to make a nasal clamp so they can't actually remove it themselves. So I know I'll say, I'm leaving this on your nose. I'll be back in 10 or 15 minutes and we'll check in on it again. Please don't touch this. Mm -hmm. Mm. Absolutely. Do you find those nasal clamps have enough pressure? Sometimes. It depends on the patient's nose often. So people have different anatomies. Sometimes people have flatter noses that they don't work as well with. Uh, Usually the tongue depressors taped together at the top are the best. They they apply a good amount of pressure, I find. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes I'll just explain to the patient that they have to apply constant hard pressure to the point where their knuckles are turning white and they can't let go for even a second. And if they let go for one second, they have to start the 10 minutes of constant hard pressure right. from from scratch again. Or if a relative's there, I'll have them do it. Well, that's another Absolutely. way of doing yeah, it. Absolutely. Detailed yeah. instructions are very important. For yeah. sure. And especially when these patients are discharged often, again, I, I, you have to re-explain how to properly apply pressure to their correct part mm-hmm. of the nose. Don't put ice packs on the back of your neck. Don't lean back. Don't just apply the right pressure. If you give them those excellent detailed instructions and they know what they understand, they probably won't be back in the department with the same thing. So we've talked about visualization. We've talked about anesthetizing the area. The next step would be cauterizing. So let's say you've adequately visualized and anesthetized the site of bleeding. Dr. Summer, what cautionary tales can you tell us about the use of silver nitrate? So this is a great topic because I find that people don't often cauterize that well, and it can be a cause of bounce backs when patients come back with their recurrent epistaxis. One of the keys is to make sure you've anesthetized them properly because the patients will not tolerate cautery when it hurts. The other thing is when you cauterize an anesthetized nose, you will make the patient sneeze. They will start bleeding again, and you'll get blood all over yourself. So wear a face mask. Or protect yourself because there's nothing grosser than getting patient's blood in your eye and your mouth and your face. The other thing is cautery in itself can be caustic and can cause damage. You're essentially trying to cut off blood supply to part of the nose. And the cartilaginous portion of the nose has no intrinsic vasculature, no blood supply, and it derives all its nutrients from the mucosa. So when you cauterize an extensive area of mucosa, you will cause necrosis of the cartilage. You want to apply the the cautery for no more than 15 seconds, and really usually only need 5 to 10 seconds to apply a reasonable amount of cautery. You want to make sure that you apply it 
just peripheral to the site of the bleeding, so around the site of the bleeding. And ideally, it needs to be in a dry plane uh, because you're trying to cause a small chemical burn to the, to the septum. And if the silver nitrate is being washed away by blood or by secretions, it's not going to work. So you want to try to dry it as much as you can. Ideally, they shouldn't be bleeding at all, or if you need to use suction to get the blood away from the area, that would be great. Apply it gently, 10 to 15 seconds over a very small area, or you'll cause necrosis. And never, never cauterize both sides of the septum because you'll absolutely cause necrosis and they'll end up with a septal defect. A little bit of polysporin or Vaseline is great just to moisturize that area because you've essentially caused a small burn. And sometimes what I'll do as well, just as if for the procoagulant effect, will be to put a little piece of Surgicel soaked in polysporin as well. And I just kind of tack it to that area that's been cauterized. Just in case it decides to start bleeding again, you have a little bit of help to stop the bleeding later. Great. Okay. And Dr. Ivankovic, what other tips and tricks can you tell our listeners to help actually stop the bleeding in epistaxis? So an interesting little tip I came across uh, in one small study, and, and actually Dr. Summer was talking about ice on the back of the neck. And uh, sometimes I do see patients coming in with ice packs on the back of their neck or on top of their nose. And so I was always curious, does this actually make a difference? And it, it definitely does not. So it has no effect on nasal mucosal blood flow. But what does help is actually ice in the mouth. So uh, it can reduce nasal mucosal blood flow by about 25%. That's not significant. So I think it's worth recommending that patients can, you know, cycle on ice or popsicles as a home re- a remedy or even in the ED. But I definitely would tell them not to bother with the ice on the back of their neck or on, the, on top of their nose. So uh, another tip Dr. Summer alluded to was using Surgicel or gel foam, especially in coagulopathic patients, because it encourages platelet aggregation. And you basically just place it right over the bleeding site and it doesn't require follow-up for removal. Uh, gel, gel foam actually usually liquefies within two to five days in the nose. The downside, of course, is that it doesn't provide any tamponading effect. So sometimes you can wrap it around a nasal tampon, especially for these coagulopathic patients. But one of the most common mistakes that we make when we're putting in nasal tampons, and I think we're going to be talking about tampons probably a bit more, but is we often don't put them posteriorly enough. And so make sure that you're not over-trimming your nasal tampon uh, and make sure that you're inserting it posterior enough. Just to add to the uh, gel foam or surgicel, these procoagulant foams or, or meshes, these are great, I find, because we don't have to remove them. Often these coagulopathic patients or uh, patients who are on anticoagulants, when they come back to the, ED, to the ED or to the ENTs, whatever follow-up you've arranged for them, three days later to have their packing removed, if they're, they're still going to be coagulopathic at that point. And so pulling out a nasal tampon, a balloon, or a formal pack, you're going to, often you'll trigger the bleeding to happen again. So having something that degrades naturally in their nose that doesn't require any kind of manipulation in the future is fantastic. Definitely. And actually, the last thing I want to mention um, that I think is going to become more mainstream is the use of uh, tranexamic acid or cyclocapron for epistaxis. So we have been using this for longer in patients with uh, Ozidweberindu or von Willebrand's, and they, as you know, often have recurrent uh, severe epistaxis. But you can use a, a quarter of a milliliter of tranexamic acid. Um, usually it's 100 milligrams per one milliliter and apply it to the area of bleeding with or without putting a tampon in after, depending on how they respond. And dentists actually use this a lot for uh, bleeding post-extractions, and it's extremely safe. And as a lot of you may know, 
tranexamic acid is actually sold over the counter in the UK uh, for heavy menzies. So there is a lot of experience with it. it. It's a very safe medication and it works very well and it's not that expensive. And actually there was a part, uh, an article published this summer in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine where a group in Iran used the injectable form of tranexamic acid and applied it topically to patients with anterior bleeds. Unfortunately, it was unblinded randomized study because there is differences in the smell of tranexamic acid versus their control group who received cotton pledge soaked in lidocaine and epi. And they didn't declare a primary outcome. Instead, they listed several what they called efficacy variables. But either way, in the end, no matter what variable you would have chosen, it favored the tranexamic acid group. And 71% of patients had control of the bleeding within 10 minutes versus 31% with the Lido and Epi group. So definitely patients uh, had greater satisfaction rates and it, it, it worked very well. So I don't know if you've had much experience with that. Uh, I've used this a couple times. I've actually used it in the dental patients uh, more than I've used it in my epistaxis patients. And I know that uh, some dentists actually have mouth rinses with tranexamic acid in it that they use for their post-op bleeding. You can use the IV formulation of tranexamic acid, which comes 100 milligrams per ml. So you can use about a, a you know, 0.2 cc's of that. And I, I mix it with uh, gel foam. You can make a slurry with the gel foam and it, it's easier to apply as a kind of a paste. You can apply apply it to the area of bleeding, apply a little bit of pressure, and it's like magic. And I mean, this is kind of the drug of the moment over the past couple of years mm-hmm. with the trauma studies coming out. It's, it's great safety uh, margin, really very little downside to using this. Absolutely. Yeah, we talked about the use of tranexamic acid in our last episode, even for patients with intracranial bleeds on anticoagulants. Sure. It doesn't hurt to throw in tranexamic acid, and that's actually what Two of our transfusion medicine experts suggested. Yeah, it seems like this drug has even. very little downside, and you know I've used it in my uh, dysfunctional uterine bleeding patients for years and years and years, okay. and it, it seems to work miracles there too. So we've talked about visualization, we've talked about anesthetizing the nose, we've talked about cauterizing. Let's say you need to pack the nose. What's your packing method of choice for epistaxis? So, so we've already talked a little bit about packing with uh, procoagulant foams and meshes, and that's a form of packing that doesn't really apply any pressure. It just gives you the platelet somewhere to aggregate and promotes coagulation. So, so I use that quite regularly, especially in my coagulopathic patients that I don't, don't really want to touch again after I've packed them. Now, in the more straightforward epistaxis patients or epistaxis patients that don't respond to those other forms of treatment, you need to use some kind of pressure technique. I find that very rarely these days have I had to go to the classic Vaseline gauze accordion style packing that I was taught when I was a resident. There are many more easily used forms of packing that are available on the market these days. And really, they kind of fall into two groups. There's the tampon methods that essentially you have a, uh, some kind of small, rigid tampon that you apply to the nose along the inferior aspect of the nose, just beside the inferior middle turbinate. And then as it absorbs liquid, they usually grow to about four or five times their size. And in that method, apply some pressure to the area of bleeding. Personally, I prefer the balloon method of tamponade. So there are inflatable balloons that come from a variety of manufacturers. 
And you essentially, again, apply them along the inferior aspect of the nose beside the middle and inferior turbinates. And then you inflate them as you see fit and you're able to apply as much pressure as you want with these balloons. Now, both have been proven to work essentially the same. There are studies that compare their efficacy and their efficacy seems to be the same in stopping anterior epistaxis. But the patient satisfaction on removal, especially of the balloon methods, tends to be higher. And I got to say, it is a lot easier to take these out because you can deflate them and essentially pull them out and it's very easy. And Dr. Ivankovic, what's your packing method of choice? So it actually depends on uh, what you have available. And in my emergency department, we just have the Mirosil packs. So I'll, I'll typically use the Mirosil packs, put a lot of polysporin around them and insert them. And again, the important thing is make sure you're not trimming these. Most of the time, the larger size is appropriate for most adult patients. And the smaller size that you have available are very rarely ever used and probably in just pediatrics sort of postoperatively. Yeah, I got to say that I'm a fan of the, the balloon you can titrate exactly the amount of pressure that you want. They're a lot smaller going in, for sure. They're smaller going in. It's just very important to follow the manufacturer's instructions for those balloons because they all have slightly different instructions. So. Yeah. And that's an important point. So if you're not used to, if you've got a, a few available, you want to make sure that, for example, uh, some of them you're not supposed to put any polysporin. So Dr. Summer, you were saying that there's the tampon type and the balloon type. Can you just give us some examples of some of the brand names of some of the tampon types and the balloon types? So the the two vendors of the tampon method of uh, packing that I am familiar familiar with are Miracel and uh, Rhino Rocket. And essentially the Miracel just comes in a wider tampon than the Rhino Rocket. Rhino Rocket has a, a plastic applicator that you can apply with. And I'm only familiar with uh, the rapid rhino form of uh, balloon tamponade, though I know that they have a number of different sizes and shapes to them. Now, for the rapid rhino, it's important that you really follow the manufacturer's instructions, which is to soak it for 30 seconds and to make sure that you're using air to inflate the balloon rather than water, because you can end up with some uh, kind of morbid consequences if not. So suffice to say that if you're going to use one of these products that you're not familiar with to make sure you follow the manufacturer's instructions. Absolutely. Okay. So Dr. Ivankovic, which patients, if any, with packing require antibiotic prophylaxis to prevent sinusitis and the dreaded toxic shock syndrome? So a common practice actually has been to put these patients on prophylactic antibiotics. But in recent years, there are more and more studies coming out showing that there is actually no good evidence for doing this. Toxic shock is quite rare, especially compared to the incidence of adverse reactions we see patients experiencing on antibiotics. Uh, and there's no studies actually suggesting that antibiotics reduce the risk of toxic shock or sinusitis for that matter. So for most patients, especially if they're not immunocompromised, they're going to only have the packing in for two to three days, I would uh, not put them on antibiotics. Having said that, I think it still would be reasonable for, for patients, you know, a small subset um, that are immunocompromised or who may have packing in longer than three to four days to put them on something such as amoxiclav or cefuroxime just for the duration of the packing. Okay. That actually brings up the point is for how long should the packing be in? Because mm-hmm. the other bounce back thing I've seen is people coming back after 12 or 24 hours to get their packing out. And then you have to go through this explanation that it's too early Dr. Summer, how long should the packing be left in? And, you know, in terms of follow-up, how do you usually organize that? 
So most of the patients that I uh, pack, I will have come back to the emergency department for removal because I find that if I send them to their family doctor, many family doctors are not comfortable removing in the office or they're concerned that they may re-bleed in the office. And I think that's a fair concern. So I'll have the patients return to the emergency department usually uh, on the third day after the packing. So I like to leave them in over 48 hours, up to 72 hours, but no longer than that especially for a straightforward bleed. Now, there are more complicated cases if the patients are on anticoagulants or they're super therapeutic with their anticoagulants. Sometimes you want to see their INRs come down first, but that's a very small subset of patients we're talking about. So here's the review for anterior epistaxis. First, there's no evidence that hypertension causes epistaxis. However, many patients will have a high blood pressure when you see them. This is usually secondary to anxiety or the pain that you put them through when you do some of the procedures that you might do to them. So consider giving anxiolytics and be sure to try to prevent and treat their pain appropriately. You don't need to treat blood pressure otherwise. When it comes to history taking, ask about previous surgeries, trauma, coagulopathy, or malignancy. Using a stepwise approach, will help improve care for these patients. Dr. Ivankovic's stepwise approach is first, visualize, second, anesthetize, third, cauterize, and fourth, tamponize. So when it comes to visualization and anesthetizing, first ask the patient to blow their nose to clear the clots and mucus. Then you can instill a cotton pledget soaked with one-to-one Dristan and topical lidocaine mix and clamp the nose for about 10 minutes, either with the patient or family member's pincer grasp or four tongue depressors taped together. Use a nasal speculum in the up-down direction rather than side to side. You can also give the patient some ice to suck on, which has been shown to decrease nasal blood flow. After you visualize and anesthetize, the next step is to cauterize. Use silver nitrate only on one side of the nasal septum and for no more than 15 seconds, just peripheral to the site of bleeding, followed by some Vaseline or some Surgicel or gel foam, especially in patients who you're worried might bleed again later. You can also use tranexamic acid by placing a quarter of a mil of the IV stuff, that's the 100 milligrams per mil tranexamic acid, at the site of bleeding, or you can make a slurry with gel foam and the tranexamic acid together. If none of this works, then the next step is to tamponize. You have the option to tamponize with an expandable tampon or with a balloon type device. The advantage of the balloon devices is that you can titrate the pressure and they're less painful on removal. What about prophylactic antibiotics? There's no evidence that prophylactic antibiotics prevent toxic shock syndrome or sinusitis. However, if your patient will have the packing in for more than three days for whatever reason, or if they're immunocompromised, you may want to consider giving them amoxclav or a cefuroxime. Patients should have the packing in for at least 48 hours before they return to the ED for packing removal. So that's about it for anterior epistaxis. Next, we'll move on to posterior epistaxis. So that pretty much covers anterior epistaxis. Let's talk about posterior epistaxis. The vast majority of patients we see are going to be anterior epistaxis. There's a small subset that are going to be posterior epistaxis. 
Sometimes I find it difficult to figure out whether they are a posterior bleed or an anterior bleed. Dr. Summer, first of all, how do you diagnose posterior epistaxis? And once you've diagnosed it, how do you manage it? So again, this is the dreaded posterior bleed, which is really a quite a morbid condition. Now, typically, these patients are going to be bleeding from one of the larger vessels in the sphenopalatine region of the nose, really in the posterior section of the nose. And because they're larger vessels, they tend to have really brisk arterial-type bleeding, and sometimes they'll be pulsatile. Now, luckily, I haven't seen very many of these patients. I think I can remember two where they had just huge pulsatile bleeding over the past 10 years. If they have that level of bleeding, like they're just bleeding like crazy, you've got to be concerned that this is a posterior bleed. Now, some of them won't present that way. They'll just be bleeding like, and they'll look like they're an anterior bleed. And you look and you visualize and you suction and you still can't tell where the bleeding is coming from. So in most of those cases, you'll try an anterior pack. That's what I'll do. Now, if you've applied an excellent anterior pack and you're sure you've got a good amount of pressure in, irrespective of the type of pack that you've used, you've left that patient for a good 10, 15, 20 minutes because, again, nobody's going to pack a nose and just discharge the patient. These are patients that you need to pack, have sit in the emergency department, whether it's in your ENT chair or in a bed or in the waiting room and come back and check on again. So I'll come back and check on them within 30 minutes or an hour or so. And if they have a good anterior pack in and they've still got a significant amount of bleeding down their posterior pharynx, so I look in their mouth and they've got dribbling down the back of their oropharynx. I'm not talking about a little bit of dribbling. They're still bleeding down the back of their oropharynx. I've got to assume that that patient has a posterior bleed. Certainly, if you've got a lot of blood trickling at the back of the, like pouring down the back of their throat, yes, this is most likely a posterior bleed. But one of the next steps, if you haven't been able to control, let's say, an anterior bleed, and they've got a unilateral pack in, is to put a contralateral pack in. And this will improve the tamponading effect on the nasal septum. So if you're not so convinced at this point that it is a posterior, or possibly you did visualize it, but you still haven't been able to control it with the one-sided packing, put in a contralateral pack. Have the patient stick around again in 15, 20 minutes, reassess them, and then decide where to go from there. That's a great point. Yeah, you can definitely get a lot more pressure on the nasal septum if you apply a contralateral pack. Okay, so massive bleeding, failed anterior pack, or failed anterior... Bilateral pack. Yeah, or failed bilateral anterior packs... That's when you got to be suspecting a posterior bleed. Yeah, and, and typically also with the patient population, if it's an older person, I mean, we, we tend to see a lot of these posterior bleeds more in the older patients. Uh, I wouldn't be so suspicious if it was, you know, a 20-year-old coming in after picking their nose. So I think also the patient's history and comorbidities might uh, also make you a little bit more suspicious. And so let's say you have diagnosed a posterior bleed. Dr. Summer, could you just go through the steps for us on how you'd manage a posterior bleed? So once you've identified them, you've also identified a pretty sick patient in your department. So this patient's got to be moved to a more acute setting. You've got to have proper monitoring in place, uh, IV access for both analgesia and resuscitation, uh, all the kind of chicken soup stuff that we always do with our sicker patients. 
Now, once, once you've done that, or as you are doing that, you want to get hemostasis. And the hemostasis that I'm more, most comfortable with is uh, catheters with double balloon setups. So you have a posterior balloon and an anterior balloon. And you apply these again like the other balloon catheters that you use for your anterior epistaxis, except they go further back. And sometimes you can even see the tips of them uh, through the oropharynx. You want to put them all the way back along the inferior margin of the nasal cavity, sometimes below the inferior turbinate or right beside the inferior turbinate. You apply them as far back as you can. You inflate the posterior balloon as per manufacturer's instructions, usually with air. And then you want to apply a little forward pressure to bring that balloon forward towards you. And it should get caught on the middle turbinate. And then you will fill in the anterior balloon again as per manufacturer's instructions. In my years of practice, I've heard some disastrous complications about posterior bleeds and posterior packing. Can you go through for us why we need to worry so much about posterior bleeds and also some cautionary tales of how to pack these patients properly? Once you've applied that posterior pack and they've got a whole bunch of pressure on their posterior nasopharynx, that is a significant vagal stimulation. They may become bradycardic, they may become hypotensive, they need a, a heavy degree of monitoring and certainly they need admission to hospital. Uh, I've never sent home a posterior pack. Uh, they, uh, from my standpoint, need to be admitted and monitored quite closely. These patients that may end up exsanguinating, having myocardial infarctions, they need to be watched very carefully. So absolutely, uh, I agree. These patients are really sick. They need to be watched closely. One thing I just wanted to add about the posterior packs, in our department, we carry a brand called Epistat. And they, like most of them, the double balloon sort of setup, they have a 30cc posterior balloon and a 10cc anterior balloon. And they actually rarely have to get fully filled. So you don't want to overfill them because often that can cause uh, pressure damage. So usually what I'll do is when I'm pulling it forward, after I've seen it in the back of the throat and I pull it forward, I'll fill it up halfway. So let's say the uh, posterior balloon takes 30 cc's. I might fill it up with 15 pull it forward and then fill it, try and fill it the rest, but often it won't go to the full 30. So I won't be putting in another 15 cc's. It might just be another five. And often you can tell by the patient's expression or that they're communicating to you that suddenly they got very, very severe pain. And that would be, you know, my cue to stop at that point. And the same thing with the anterior balloon. Uh, The other thing is with these anterior balloons, once you've inflated them, often you can get a lot of septal deviations. So you may consider putting in a contralateral anterior pack to fix that deviation and improve also anterior tamponading effect. So one of the other complications of posterior packs is actually alar necrosis. And the reason that happens is when you inflate the anterior balloon, or if you're using a Foley because your department doesn't carry a double balloon type device, you want to make sure that you've got it as center as possible because if it's pushing more on one side or sort of pushing on the nostril, you can get alar necrosis, which is irreversible. uh, And sadly, it's not an uncommon complication. So it's very important to pad it properly and make sure when you're looking up the, the nose that your packing looks centered and not pushing more on one side than the other. And again, this is a more common uh, consequence of packing with a Foley catheter rather than the pre-manufactured double balloon setup because uh, with a Foley, again, you're you're applying it to the posterior aspect. Uh, You're applying it all the way posterior as far as you can go. Often you'll even pull it down a little bit more through the oropharynx fill up that posterior balloon and pull it back. And you have to secure that anterior part of the Foley that's coming out through the nares some way. Mm -hmm. 
you want to make sure that you secure that in such a way that it's not applying undue pressure to the to the center of the nose and, and going to cause some necrosis to the alarary Absolutely. region. Okay, so the two key things to avoid are overinflating the balloon and securing the Foley in such a way that it's not applying too much pressure to the nares. Okay. And one of the things you can do, as you mentioned, Dr. Ivankovic, is to use a piece of gauze wrapped around the catheter to pad it, so to speak, to prevent the necrosis. Absolutely. And these are patients that you will put on antibiotics. Again, there's uh, there's no good evidence to put these patients yes. on antibiotics. I've never seen any number needed to treat. Mm-hmm. But wisdom tells us that we should pro- we have traditionally put these patients on antibiotics yes. in the past. Ancient wisdom. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Okay. So so far, there's I don't I don't think that there's any literature yet to say that we can stop doing this. So for now, IV antibiotics and admit. Interestingly, there is some recent literature in sort of the ENT literature suggesting that some of these patients can be safely sent home. I certainly wouldn't be making that decision. I would be consulting my ENT and if they want to send the patient home, I would leave it up to them. Yeah. And this really depends on the availability of your consultants and their practice. But uh, my practice and the practice in the hospitals that I've worked in the past has always been to admit these patients. Stop that train. Let's move on to case number two. Two female four-year-old twins present to the emergency department. They had been playing together unsupervised the day prior, and mum brought them in today because she noticed discharge from the nose of one of the twins, and the other twin was complaining of ear pain. They're both very uncooperative during your exam, but you manage to see what looks like a green bead in one of the twins' right nair and a red bead in the other twin's left ear. So let's get into talking about foreign bodies of the nose and ears. Dr. Ivankovic, can you give us your pearls of wisdom first when it comes to removing foreign bodies of the nose? So one of the first things actually I just want to mention on history there, you mentioned that the mom had brought the child with a foreign body in their nose in because of nasal discharge. So I think a lot of us are quick to think, oh, nasal discharge, this is a cold. Um, you see a lot of children being diagnosed with sinusitis, which is actually pretty uncommon in the pediatric uh, age group. So anytime you see unilateral nasal discharge or even bilateral, if you're concerned, I would look up the nose to make sure that there isn't a foreign body there. So in this case, uh, it sounds like we did that, so that's good. One of the first things I might do to try and get a better look of the foreign body is to reduce the edema around this. So often, if it's been sitting there for even a few hours, you can get a lot of swelling, and it can make it very hard to see exactly what you're dealing with. So I will mix some oxymetazolin and lidocaine, so the Dristan and lidocaine one-to-one for both reducing the edema and for some local. And the exception when I will not do this is if there is a possibility that there's a button battery in there because you can actually spread the alkaline content um, that may have leaked out. So don't put any liquids in the nose if you suspect there could be a button battery in there. And by the way, those need to be removed very urgently because uh, you can get septal perforation even within four hours. 
So with these patients, a lot of the time they're, they're not going to be cooperative. So it's very important that you either have a lot of help there with your nursing uh, or you might consider even procedural sedation. Uh, my go-to is definitely ketamine, especially in this type of a situation. It's unlikely to blunt the protective airway reflexes like a lot of other agents may. And if you don't want to go to the whole sort of IV uh, procedural sedation setup, you might consider just giving the patient a small dose of intranasal midazolam, uh, just as mild sedation. Now I'm just going to pop in quickly. Uh, again, I, I think ketamine is great in these, this, especially this patient population. You can use it IM or IV. My personal preference is IV. But if you vasoconstricted their noses, uh, just a word of caution about laying them supine, especially if you're going to be sedating them, because once they're vasoconstricted, the foreign body can easily drop back posterior, especially if they're laying supine. So if you're considering procedural sedation, you may not want to vasoconstrict them right away. If you vasoconstrict them, often I will leave them sitting up so I can get a better look uh, in a few minutes after they fully vasoconstricted. Absolutely. So in, in this case, let's just say we decide not to uh, sedate the child and we have lots of help. What I'll try and do first to get a look in the nose is I'll have someone stabilizing the patient's head and I'll use my non-dominant hand just to push the tip of their nose up. Um, it really helps if you've got a headlamp, of course, to, to visualize. If just pushing the tip of the nose up doesn't help you see the foreign body, you might consider using a nasal speculum. Uh, and again, make sure that you've got an appropriately sized one, so a pediatric one. And at this point, once you visualized it, depending on what the foreign body is, you can decide on what tool you're going to try and use first. So I like to have a variety of tools at the bedside, depending on what the foreign body might end up being. So I usually like to have a bayonet forceps, alligator forceps, an L-hook, which I'll talk a little bit more about, suction tip cap catheters, and a bag valve mask. So forceps are good for cotton and some plastic toys. Um, just avoid using it for any smooth objects because if you can't easily grab it, you might just be pushing it further back into the nasal cavity. I've learned that the hard way a few yeah. times. <laughs> yeah. The uh, L-hook, which is also known as the 90-degree angle or right-angle hook, is actually one of my favorite tools. If your department doesn't have them, and we actually are lucky that we do have them in our ENT trays, uh, you can consider making your own with an, using an 18-gauge needle and angling the end of it, uh, but just have to be careful because it is a little bit sharper. And the short little hook on the end is great for hooking into the hole of a bead or getting behind an object and then pulling it forward. Yeah, I find that definitely the L-hook is my go-to instrument mm -hmm. too for foreign bodies of both the nose and ear. Uh, mostly because a lot of these things are going to be slimy, they're going to be difficult to grab with forceps. So if you can get behind them and pull them towards you, it definitely is going to make it easier for you to get them. In my department, they're not stacked in the in the usual ENT examination tray or in the foreign body tray. So I've had people go to the OR to get those tools for me sometime. If I can't get it at all, then in a pinch, I've used uh, the small uh, cerumen uh, rings that uh, you get in a lot of these irrigate irrigation trays. They're 45 degrees, a lot of them. But if you use a large one, again, you can sometimes just, just get around behind the foreign object and bring it towards you. Mm -hmm. Okay. You mentioned an 18-gauge needle with a 90-degree bend in it. Yes. Don't you worry about lacerating in an uncooperative child? Now, I've never used this technique, but I have used 18-gauge uh, needles for other things. Uh, for example, femoral nerve blocks, I used to use 18-gauge uh, needles, and I just used to blunt the end of them so you can drop it on a metal tray a few times just to blunt the tip. And I think that'll probably reduce the risk of causing any laceration intranasally. Okay. And I guess you'd probably be doing it in the patient that you do sedate. 
you know, rather than the, the wild, patient. the wild, squirmy yes, four-year-old. You definitely want a very cooperative patient. Uh, so the suction tip catheter is good for round objects, but I find uh, positive pressure techniques the most successful and least traumatic for removing nasal foreign bodies. So I want to mention the parent's kiss technique, and that's where you have parents blow a short, sharp puff of air into the patient's mouth while they're occluding the unaffected nostril. And this technique, believe it or not, actually has greater than 60% success rates, almost 80% in one study. And even if it doesn't get the object all the way out, often it'll just sort of push it forward into reach. Now, sometimes parents are not comfortable trying this technique, and I tend to like to have more control over the situation, so I actually prefer using the bag valve mask technique. So get an appropriately sized bag valve mask, and then hold the mask sideways as opposed to how you normally would, um, because you don't want to block the nose, and then occlude the unaffected nares with one finger and give a quick puff of positive pressure in the mouth, and typically just shoots right out, and usually once is enough. Yeah, and this is, this is one of those techniques. I, I usually get the parent or grandparent to do it. I was always taught that it was called the grandmother's kiss. Oh. Um, and if you can get the parent to do it and it works, it's like the pulled elbow. It's, they think you're a god. Mm. Like it's the, all of a sudden this snotty piece of bead comes shooting at the patient's nose and they think you're the best thing yeah. ever. Could you just go into more detail exactly how you do the, the parent kiss in terms of getting a, a proper seal and all that? So uh, the way I tell the parent to do it is uh, I tell them to basically put their mouth around the child's mouth so they have a full occlusion. You're going to occlude the other nair, so all, all your pressure is going to come out one nair, and then they give one big puff of air right, right down the, the mouth of the child. Uh, and again, often, even if you don't get the foreign body to come right out, it'll come a lot closer that you can get it. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I find a lot of the times you tell them to put... Uh, you, you tell them to cover their entire mouth and they blow and you hear yeah. come you want to get there. a good seal you want to get a good seal i think yeah. that's the key with that technique yeah. so you've got a lot of options here in terms of how to get a foreign body out of a kid's nose but what we're suggesting here is to start with some kind of pressure technique either the parent kiss or a bag valve mask uh, to try and at least bring it down further so that it's easier to take out with an l hook which seems to be the preferred invasive technique are there any other techniques that you've read about that you can try uh, if these techniques fail? There is also the tissue adhesive method. So you can use tissue glue, apply to the end of, you know, those long Q-tips most emergers have, apply it to the blunt end and let it adhere to the foreign body. And usually you need a cooperative patient for this. So unless you can hold them down for 60 seconds, it's not ideal because the nasal discharge might interfere with the adhesive effect. Uh, So I find these are a little bit more helpful in removing ear foreign bodies, but it is still something to add to your armamentarium for nasal foreign bodies. Now, by the by, the blunt end, do you mean the tip with the cotton on it, or do you mean the tip with the wood? <laughs> Good thing, yes, the wood, the wooden end. Thank yeah, you for I clarifying. Agree. Because if you yeah. if you put it on the cotton tip, you're kind of get a large area of adhesive, mm-hmm. and you can easily just adhere yourself to something that you didn't intend to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you and mean when- like your tongue adhering to a frozen pole, something like that? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you've had experience with that. <laughs> <laughs> No, but it was a great SNL skit. (laughs) But actually, one more thing I wanted to mention, though, is once you actually do get the foreign body out, is make sure you check that there is nothing behind it, because I'm shocked sometimes how much can fit up these little noses, and uh, always check the other side as well, and you might want to take a quick look in the ears. I'm looking through you, where did you go? I thought I knew. 
Okay, so that's the technique options for nasal foreign bodies. Sometimes we try and we try and we try and we just can't get that darn thing out of the nose. That leads to the question of which patients with nasal foreign bodies do you refer? So typically it's recommended that if you've got any chronic sort of impacted or penetrating foreign bodies, those should be referred. Uh, and also if you've tried sort of more than three times, depending on your comfort level and you haven't been successful, you, may want, you might want to refer these as well. And definitely uh, button batteries or paired magnets need urgent removal as they could lead to septal perforation. So you mean paired magnets across the nasal septum? Right. Yeah. The one thing I just want to add is uh, I know that my consultants and in, in speaking to uh, a few others, if it's vegetable matter that's going to get bigger over the next 12 to 24 hours, many ENTs would rather see those early than later when it's going to be a lot more difficult to get that piece of corn or whatever it is out. So that's nasal foreign bodies. Let's move on to ear foreign bodies. Dr. Summer, can you give us your tips and tricks when it comes to ear foreign bodies? Very, very similar to nasal foreign bodies. And I think a lot of the key to this is having good instrumentation, good setup, and good lighting. And I use a headlamp for all these cases because I find having both my hands free to actually manipulate uh, both the outside part of the ear or, have, or holding a speculum to open the ear or the nose up is critical. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost impossible for me to do this properly without good lighting. Right. Yeah, I find if you don't have access to a headlamp, having the parent again, being involved and the parent holding the light for you. But ideally a headlamp, really every emergency department should have at least one headlamp. If you can't get one of the big medical headlamps, then I urge your department to just go to a camping store and get a a simple headlamp because it's critical for both these, the epistaxis patients. It's it's a standard emergency medicine tool. So if I have good lighting, uh, I'd like to get good access. So uh, usually if you just pull back on the pinna of the ear posteriorly, you can get a better view of the canal. You can also use a, a pediatric sized nasal speculum if you want to, to have a good look inside the, the canal, but I find pulling back is usually adequate. And then once you see it, uh, you can kind of get an idea of what you're working with. If it's something that's easily broken up, like I had a patient, for example, who had a wax earplug that was just full of debris and breaking up, then irrigation might be your method of choice. If it's uh, dirt, then again, irrigation, you're not going to really be able to grab it with anything. So irrigation may be your method of choice. If it happens to be a live foreign body, uh, usually an insect, I've had flies, wasps, moths in people's ears, then you need to kill it before you're going to get it out. And the easiest way to do that is just to take your standard 2% lidocaine like you'd use for laceration and fill the ear with that. And it probably has a little bit of an anesthetic effect even on the mucosa. So it may actually make extraction a little bit easier for you. And things like hydrogen peroxide and isopropanol don't work. Uh, so sometimes uh, I've seen patients try that. Uh, mineral oil will, will also work, uh, but typically most of us will use the lidocaine. Yeah, mineral oil works, but I find it's really gunky to get mm-hmm. out later. Yeah. So I prefer using lidocaine yeah, personally. Absolutely. And I actually do find that it provides a little bit of anesthesia too, especially the tympanic membrane where you have like more exposed mucous membrane. Now, if it's a smooth foreign body or, and it's fairly close, a lot of my ENTs would prefer that I don't touch them because a lot of the time, especially because we don't do this as often as they do, because we don't have microscopes and we don't have the tools that they do, we will end up pushing that foreign body down and it's going to be harder for them to get out later. So it's, if it's nothing urgent, like an alkalizing battery or a piece of vegetable matter that's going to get bigger, 
then many of my consultants, and again, this is going to depend on your practice pattern and where you work, many of my consultants would prefer to see that patient within 24 to 48 hours and take it out themselves. They're not at high risk of, of perforation as long as it's something simple and smooth. Now, if you don't have access to an ENT or it's something that requires more urgent extraction, then you should go for it. And just like in the nose, my go-to technique is using the L-hook. So getting around the foreign body, especially if it's something smooth like a rock, a tooth, a bead, where it's going to be very difficult to grasp with a bayonet forcep, then I'll try to get an, just get an L-hook around it when I straighten out the external auditory canal and pulling it out towards me. Because I find that if I try to grab it with a, with a pincer of some kind, alligator forcep, bayonet forcep, most of the time that thing's going to squeeze it out and it's going to just end up going closer to the TM. And then it really hurts. If you sometimes, because we've been trying really hard, we might end up injuring the external auditory canal. And so if I have caused any damage to the external auditory canal, I'll put these patients on Ciprodex when I send them home. Sure, and that's reasonable. Again, there's not a lot of science behind mm -hmm. any of that, uh, but it, I think probably more for the dexamethasone than the Cipro. Mm -hmm. We're probably we've caused some inflammation and some swelling, and it may be easier for someone to take it out later if they've had some anti-inflammatory in the ear. So, just to add to Dr. Summer's list of things to refer for, if you've got a penetrating foreign body, so bobby pins or pencils, uh, or if it's a, you, th you think it's glass, I might consider referring those. And of course, like the tightly wedged spherical ones are, are very tough to get out and most of the ENTs will want to do them the, themselves. Yeah, they're, they're really difficult to get out. And again, the, the sharp things, the button batteries, the vegetable matter, those not only require referral, but urgent referral. So button batteries, same day, absolutely. The other things, the, the sharper things, the tightly wedged ones or the vegetable matter within 12 to 24 hours for sure. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to our third case. An 83-year-old diabetic man presents to your ED with five days of persistent discharge and pain from the ear after having their ear syringed for cerumen. He was seen two days prior at another hospital and put on Ciprodex eardrops, but he reports that the pain and discharge are getting worse. On exam, he appears uncomfortable and has a temp of 37.6. The rest of his vitals are normal. His ear exam shows a very narrow and swollen ear canal full of discharge. The astute ED doc syringes out most of the discharge to discover some white tissue in the floor of the ear canal. Dr. Summer, what diagnosis are you worried about in this patient and why? I feel like you've served it up to me on a platter here. This is, this is a great case. I mean, so you've got an old patient who's diabetic, who's got a very painful ear and what looks like possibly granulation tissue on the base of his external auditory canal. It's got to be necrotizing otitis externa, malignant otitis externa, osteitis of the skull base, whatever you want to call it. There have been multiple names used. Uh, I've always learned to call it malignant otitis externa in the past, but I'd certainly be very concerned that this patient had malignant otitis externa. So let's get into talking about malignant otitis externa. This is a seriously aggressive form of otitis externa that can occasionally lead to nasty complications like brain abscess, meningitis, cerebral venous thrombosis. It's easy to miss early on, and it has a range of clinical lab and imaging findings. Dr. Summer, can you review for us 
the range of presentations. You know, I presented you a classic case, but can you can you uh, review for us the range of presentations of malignantitis externa and the key diagnostic clues to help people pick this up? Yeah, so this is this is really one of these great ER diagnoses, which usually means that it's great for us to make the diagnosis and horrible for the patient to have it. And what I mean by that is it's it's going to be one of these diseases where the patient presents with what looks like a fairly benign condition. They will often be triaged to a more ambulatory setting in your emergency department, along with all the more benign condition, what benign looking conditions. And it's really the what I see is the role of the astute emergency physician to pick up one of these patients who appears to be fairly benign looking and realize that this is actually one of the sickest patients in your department. And of course, the problem is that this is extremely rare, and only one in several thousand cases of otitis, otitis externa will actually be this horrible, debilitating cause of morbidity. Really, I kind of see it like the subarachnoid hemorrhage or the aortic dissection of the ear, because it's rare. Most patients who present with similar symptoms will have benign conditions, and it will be missed by most initial healthcare providers for the patient. So the range of presentations can be very wide. I mean, the ones that are going to be the easiest to pick up are going to be the ones who present morbidly sick. They're going to be comatose. They'll have meningitis or encephalitis, cranial nerve abnormalities. But really the key, just like with picking up a sentinel bleed in a subarachnoid, is to pick up the ones who are still early in their clinical course. So you can think that most of these patients will have just your run-of-the-mill otitis externa. But as the otitis externa creeps through the cartilaginous structures and into the bony structures, it will cause more and more morbidity for the patient. So first it'll get into the bone, usually the temporal bone. Uh, Sometimes it will cause some cranial nerve abnormalities. Usually the facial nerve will be the first one involved, but it can creep over to the jugular foramen and also cause cranial nerve 9, 10, 11 abnormalities. And then as it creeps into the cranium, it'll cause more of a meningitis, encephalitis, intracranial abscess type of picture. It can also lead to cavernous venous thrombosis if it gets into your cavernous sinuses. So they may present with a terrible headache, trismus of their jaw if it gets into there. There really is a very wide spectrum of disease. But the hardest part is is to pick up the early ones because those are the ones that you can really alter the course of the illness. Once it gets into their brain, those patients are going to have lasting morbidity for the rest of their life. If you can get them treated early when it's just in the bone, those patients mostly will have an excellent cure rate. So you had mentioned that the earliest cranial nerve that might be involved is cranial nerve 7. So anyone with otitis externa, you should ask about cranial nerve 7 and examine about cranial nerve 7 abnormalities. What other diagnostic clues can you give us to help differentiate that just plain old otitis externa from malignant otitis externa. I mean, the key to making this diagnosis is being suspicious. And again, just like all those other great ER diagnoses, you're never going to make the diagnosis if you haven't considered it. So the key is to consider the diagnosis and very important to consider the diagnosis in patients who are at risk for the diagnosis. Most malignant otitis externa occurs in diabetics. 80 to 90% occurs in diabetics. Diabetes is the main risk factor because it's an immunosuppression. It's a form of immunosuppression. And so really any immunosuppressed patient, whether it's because they're on uh, chemotherapy because they've got cancer or they're on methotrexate because they have some kind of rheumatologic disease, any immunosuppressed patient 
you have to consider this in the differential. If they've had a splenectomy, if they've had a transplant, those are really the keys. And the no. other thing, I was just going to mention the other reason that diabetics are a little bit more prone is it's thought that um, they've got increased pH in their earwax that can predispose them and they get microangiopathic changes in the ear canal, which you also see in, in, in older patients. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and those, again, these are all hypothetical things, but we know that diabetics are at the biggest risk for Absolutely, malignant yeah. otitis externa. And the other thing is, on so on physical exam or on history, let's start with history, actually. These patients usually have unremitting, painful otalgia that's out of proportion with what you'd expect with run-of-the-mill otitis externa. They are usually in severe pain, but everybody experiences pain differently. So you may have a stoic patient with terrible otitis, uh, malignant otitis externa who's not telling you that they're in terrible pain. So it's just another clue. And then finally, on physical exam, now all these patients, even with benign, let's call it otitis externa, are going to have mucky-looking ears. But a hallmark physical exam finding is granulation tissue, and you'll usually find it on the inferior or dorsal portion of the external auditory canal where the cartilage and the bone meet. So any kind of white stuff that you see that doesn't look like the usual... Yeah, so it'll be white stuff. It's going to be hard to actually remove it because it's going to be right on uh, linked to the cartilage. Mm-hmm. And often it's got a bit of a pink hue to it. So you can think of like your chronic ulcer patients who have that granulation tissue that's forming on the edge of their healing ulcer. It's got this pink, pinkish tinge to it with a little bit of the white growing granulation on it. Obviously, if they've had extension of their otitis externa into other structures, they're going to come in with other findings. So uh, some of these patients will have trismus or a lot of pain with chewing because of involvement of their TMJ. And then you will do a cranial nerve exam, especially looking for a facial facial nerve palsy or any other cranial nerve abnormality. Anything like that should really trigger huge alarm bells. So to try and distinguish a plain otitis externa versus a malignant otitis externa, some of the key diagnostic clues are first the risk factors, diabetes being the number one, uh, pain out of proportion, any cranial nerve abnormalities, pain with chewing or trismus or, you know, you suspect extension into the TMJ, and the finding of granulation tissue. Those are all key findings, but again, the most important thing is to be suspicious and be vigilant because it's a rare diagnosis and we don't make it very often. So we've got this range of presentations from what looks almost benign to the really sick comatose patient with meningitis or brain abscess. Obviously, we're going to be working up those patients who are really, really sick. But for the ones who aren't so sick, who kind of look benign, but you might be suspecting the diagnosis, let's say they're diabetic and you're not sure, but you might see some granulation tissue. How do you work up these patients, the ones that look sort of benign, but you still suspect the diagnosis? So just like everything else in emergency medicine, it it requires some clinical acumen and a pretest probability. If your pretest probability is pretty low, like they're a pretty well-controlled diabetic, they look like a pretty standard otitis externa, there's no granulation tissue, there's no other findings. If they have risk factors, I would probably at least order an ESR. Uh, ESR is elevated in the overwhelming majority of cases. It's quite a sensitive marker in this disease. It's usually markedly elevated. We're talking about an ESR greater than 80 If that ESR is elevated, I think it really forces you into going further in the diagnostic pathway. And don't forget that the ESR increases normally with age, 
And so a cutoff of a high ESR should be the patient's age plus 10 divided by 2 rather than what the lab's upper limit of normal is. Now, once you've come up with that high ESR, or if you've got more clinical suspicion than an ESR would let you rule out, then you have to figure out what other tests you want to do to clinch the diagnosis. Now, if you have easy access to ENT, this may be the time to refer them. Let them complete the investigations. If you don't, or if your ENTs don't take referrals so easily, you have to go a little bit further. There are several imaging modalities that you can go for. CT scan is pretty good. CT scanning really is looking for temporal bone calcium loss. Now, it's fairly sensitive, but you need to lose about a third of your bone density in your temporal bone before a CT will become positive. So it's not the most sensitive test. It's a great test to look for extension of disease, abscesses. If you give contrast in the right phase, you'll see cavernous sinus thrombosis. So it's a great test to delineate anatomy, look for other diagnoses, but it's not the most sensitive test for malignant otitis externa. The most sensitive tests are going to be bone scans, so either technetium or gallium scanning. Technetium scans look for osteoclastic and osteoblastic activity. So if there's any bone loss or bone formation in the temporal bone, it's going to be a very sensitive marker of that. Probably one of the diagnostic tests of choice if you have access to it. That's interesting. I mean, usually we think of CT as excellent for bone, and you'd think that it would be more sensitive than a bone scan. But in this case, it's an exception where the bone scans actually might be, might be a better choice in, as an initial imaging Absolutely. test. And the, the other uh, scanning method, gallium scanning, which looks at macrophagic activity, so it's really kind of a sign of infection more than anything, is probably preferred because it can be used to follow disease course. So uh, technetium scan will be positive whether the bone is reforming or whether it's being uh, blown away by the, by the disease, whereas gallium scanning will actually improve throughout the course of the illness as it's being treated. So most uh, infectious disease doctors prefer gallium scanning as the initial test and then for follow-up. As well, ESR should decrease as you treat the disease. And of course, we all have immediate access to MRIs 24-7 so an MRI is another choice. An MRI is not bad. Now, actually, uh, there have been studies comparing MRI, CT, and bone scanning. And uh, MRI is less sensitive for bony destruction than CT scan, but it's more sensitive for the soft tissue effects of malignant otitis externa. So if you're looking at just the osteitis of the bone, CT actually is a slightly more sensitive. But again, the imaging modality of choice, if you have access to it, like, you know, the radiologists are around, it's not the weekend, there's no isotope shortage, gallium scanning. That's so nice that MRI is not the imaging modality of choice. <laughs> For once. For once. Great. One more point in terms of investigation that usually doesn't help us make the diagnosis but because there is more and more resistance for pseudomonas, which is the main causative agent for malignant otitis externa, culturing the debris from the ear before you initiate treatment is really a key part in the diagnostic workup. If you think the patient has malignant otitis externa, do, just doing a simple swab of the discharge from the ear may help significantly in treating them later down the road. It won't help us, but it'll help their final treating physician. Great. Okay, so let's say you've got this patient with malignant otitis externa, you've made the diagnosis through whichever tests you've ordered or just based on history and physical. What about the disposition of these patients and the, the management? Dr. Ivankovic, which of these patients need to be admitted and what are your management options? 
So certainly the really sick ones that come in sort of comatose, toxic, obviously those are keepers, but the majority of them actually can go home. So once you've made the diagnosis and uh, you're happy that your patient is not toxic, will have good follow-up, you can send them home on oral Cipro, so 750 BID typically. It's got good pseudomonal coverage, which is, uh, as Dr. Summer mentioned, the most common pathogen, about 95% of cases. It's got good bioavailability and bone penetration. So most of the time I'll speak to my ENT uh, and they'll follow up on the patient, but we can send them home on oral antibiotics. Now, and the cure rate I should mention with fluoroquinolones is about 90%. Some experts still like to keep patients in hospital, even if they look otherwise well, for a few days of IV Cipro until they can see clinical improvement or improvements in the ESR, and then they'll, they'll discharge them on oral. And typically treatment is required for six to eight weeks, so similar to osteomyelitis. Some patients might require surgery for debridement of granulation tissue or biopsy to rule out cancer, Um, but for the most part, surgery doesn't play a role for malignant otitis externa. And there has been, you know, thoughts that hyperbaric oxygen can help, even though a Cochrane review concluded that there isn't actually any uh, clear evidence that does help compared to antibiotics plus or minus surgery, but it still could be considered in very severe or refractory cases. And just one more thing to add, again, depending on your practice environment and your accessibility to subspecialty follow-up, I like to have in my hospitals, which are in urban centers, I like to have all these patients at least seen by ENT within 12 hours of the diagnosis. Because again, this is a terrible disease. In the 50s and 60s, they had a 50 to 60% mortality rate. Uh, and although uh, we're really good at treating this and the fluoroquinolones are great and we have other anti-pseudomonals, of patients are still going to die. And I think it's reasonable for ENT to be very involved in their care. Definitely. Uh, And the last thing I might mention is that this patient came in on Ciprodex and was not improving, which is another bit of a a clue. For patients that are diagnosed with malignant otitis externa, we actually don't continue them on Ciprodex or put them on Ciprodex. There's no evidence that that helps. And, and if anything, it can make it harder to isolate the organism when you do your swab. Yeah, and certainly it makes it once they've been on partial treatment, if mm-hmm. you want to call it, then uh, then a culture is not going to be as useful, but it's still reasonable to send it. Unfortunately, culture results are only positive, like in many of the other of our diseases, only you know 15 to 20% of the time. Send it for what it's worth. It's not going to help you. Stop their Ciprodex. Uh, I see it as kind of like, you know, peeing in the ocean. You're, they're on major systemic fluoroquinolones. The, the little drop of Ciprodex isn't going to help you. Let's move on to our next case. We've got an otherwise healthy 71-year-old doctor who wakes up in the morning unable to hear out of the right ear. He has no pain, no fever, no history of trauma, no tinnitus, and no neurologic symptoms. There's nothing to find on physical exam except marked, decreased sensory neural hearing loss in the right ear. Dr. Summer, what do you think the most likely diagnosis is in this doc? Well, certainly my concern would be that he's had uh, acute or sudden sensory neural hearing loss of unknown origin. Uh, And this is a tough diagnosis to have because we really don't understand it that well. There's no precipitating causes that we can see on history. There's nothing on physical exam that we're we're able to really find. And the problem with this is that it's really, it's considered an emergency because 
patients can have permanent hearing loss, especially we think if not treated appropriately. So we've got the 71-year-old doc. What else would you want to know on history and physical in terms of sorting out the differential diagnosis and making sure that the hearing loss is not due to something else? Well, as an emergency physician, again, I'm kind of trained to look for the worst causes of someone's symptoms or signs. So if someone comes in with an acute hearing loss, which is essentially it can be a cranial nerve abnormality, I want to make sure they don't have an intracranial problem that's going to lead to that. So do they have a traumatic cause? Do they have a subdural or a fracture of their temporal bone that's led to their hearing loss? Did they fall down? Has there been any history of trauma? Is there significant pain, which can be a sign of an infective process that's leading to it? Uh, Has there been fever or drainage? Has a patient had any other neurologic symptoms or signs? Is there a headache, diplopia, dysarthria, anything that would point to a region of the skull base or a cerebellar problem that's causing it, or an acoustic neuroma, for example, that's causing their problem? And... Then on physical exam, do they have any lateralizing findings on neurologic exam? And is their ear exam actually normal? So do they have something simple like just an occlusive process, be it a cerumen or a cholesteatoma that's causing their hearing loss? Do they have an infection, a perforated eardrum, something else that I can you know hang my hat on? If their physical exam is completely normal and they really have nothing else on history, then usually they'll have sudden sensory neural hearing loss. And of course, the thing that may be on everyone's mind, because it's the most common diagnosis that's labeled as sudden sensory neural hearing loss, but it's actually something else, is an acute ischemic event that's caused the hearing loss. And typically, unfortunately, these are going to be in the posterior fossa, so CT imaging isn't as helpful in making the diagnosis. Uh, These patients will need some other form of investigation, usually NMR. It's important to ask about and look for the, the D's the six D's of posterior circulation strokes. Yes. Okay. Dr. Yvankovic, what are some of the typical features for the presentation of sudden sensory neural hearing loss? We've talked about all the things that it can't be. What are the things that help you kind of rule it in? So the, the typical presentation is, is very much like the one you described. Uh, the patient wakes up in the morning with a unilateral decreased hearing, or they might describe losing their hearing within 12 hours from from symptom onset. By definition, sudden sensory neural hearing loss is a hearing loss of at least 30 decibels over at least three frequencies that occurs within 72 hours. And of course, there's no way of us in the merge knowing that. But of course, these patients will all end up getting audiometric uh, evaluation when they see ENT and follow-up. But from our perspective, basically, it should be under 72 hours, typically unilateral, can happen at any age, but most often in the 40s and 50s. And an interesting thing on on presentation is that about a third of patients might present with vertigo. So it is important to think about this on your differential for vertigo. And they could also complain of feeling that their ear is blocked. So you definitely want to make sure that you can differentiate between conductive hearing loss, secondary to wax in their ear, let's say, uh, versus a sensorineural hearing loss. And then that makes it very dif- difficult to differentiate from Meniere's disease, which also presents very typic- very similarly with hearing loss, tinnitus, oral fullness, and vertigo. Yeah. Meniere's typically causes more of a fluctuating sensory neural hearing loss, you know, if, if that can help you. Uh, but often it, it may be difficult to, to differentiate. Yeah, it's not quite as acute. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. And usually the Meniere's, most Meniere's patients will have recurrent attacks. Mm-hmm. And that'll help you. But the first attack, it can look very much the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So I guess one of the key things is not to assume, when someone comes in feeling like they have a blocked ear, you know, the first thing we assume is that it's serum in their ear. So when you go and look in the ear and you don't see anything there, don't assume it's nothing. You should assume that it could be sudden sensory neural hearing loss. Absolutely. And you can do some testing in the eMERGE as well to check whether it is sensory neural hearing loss or conductive. Okay. So that actually leads right into the next question. In, in medical school, once upon a time, I vaguely remember learning the Weber's test and Rhine's test to distinguish between conductive and sensory neural hearing loss. Could you just run through for us what these tests are, whether we should be using them in the emergency room, or what other alternatives there are to using these tests to figure out whether it's a conductive hearing loss or a sensory neural hearing loss? So I will do that, but before everybody tunes out, I want to promise you that there's going to be a, a very easy substitution for doing the Weber, Weber, and Rene, depending on how you want to pronounce it, tests in the eMERGE. So first of all, the big challenge is trying to find a 512 tuning fork in your eMERGE. Now, practically speaking, most of us are not going to spend the time to go track down 512 hertz tuning fork. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is the eMERGE environment is not very conducive to doing this kind of testing. Like, uh, you know, when you have the belligerent patient who's yelling just mm-hmm. down the hall, can you hear the little tuning fork beside you? It's not, yeah. It doesn't work very well. All the monitor is going right. off, absolutely. So one of the quick, very easy substitute tests that you can do is something called the hum test. So basically all you do is you ask the patient to hum and you ask them which ear it lateralizes to. So which ear do they hear it louder in? So if you just try that right now, um, hum, and you can plug, plug your ear on one side, and you'll hear that it lateralizes to that ear. That suggests a conductive hearing loss. So if you think about it, basically, if you had an ear full of wax, which is, you know, just plug that ear and hum, you hear it louder on that side. So that will at least help you rule in a conductive hearing loss, which is less worrisome. And the HUM test and the Weber test have actually a 95% correlation rate to to one another in diagnosing conductive hearing loss and 70% correlation in diagnosing sensory neural. So it's actually a pretty good test. So that's, I think, what I would typically use in the emergency department. Sounds more practical. Absolutely. How should we manage these patients in the emergency department? Let's say we're convinced that we can't find anything else on history and physical, and we're convinced that it is sudden sensory neural hearing loss of unknown cause. So this is one of these uh, fantastic diagnoses in medicine that we all learn in medical school that when we really don't know what's causing it, then we say that it's of possible autoimmune origin with an inflammatory component and possibly a viral trigger, which usually in medical school I found means nobody really knows what causes it. And I really think that's what's going on here. Nobody really knows what's causing it. We've tried a few treatments that seem to have helped for whatever reason. And so a lot of people consider it very similar to a Bell's palsy just affecting the the ear. So they treat it like a Bell's palsy. And Bell's palsy is thought to be caused by a viral trigger, usually either some kind of herpes virus, an HSV virus, uh, maybe Epstein-Barr virus, which causes mono or CMV, which are all in kind of the same family of things. So it's treated with uh, antiviral treatments and steroids, very similar to a Bell's palsy. And I think it's important to mention, you know, it might sound confusing, well, how much workup do these patients need in the eMERGE before you sort of just uh, put them on antiviral and uh, steroids and send them on their way to CENT, hopefully within a few days. 
you know, most of these patients, unless there is anything suspicious on neurological uh, exam or history, most of them won't get any investigations in the emergency. Typically, uh, as you mentioned, you know, for those patients that might have a rare, you know, cerebellar infarct or a brain, a small brainstem infarct, they're not going to show up on CT. So most of the time, we're not imaging these patients in the eMERGE. They actually will get an MR with GAD, usually arranged by ENT as an outpatient to rule out tumors of the cerebellopontine angle or small brainstem infarcts. And, you know, routine blood work is not going to help you either. So as long as you've done, you know, a thorough history, physical, uh, you've done your hum test, uh, you've sort of ruled out any other obvious causes, the mo- most important thing is to start them on treatment as soon as possible and arrange, arrange urgent ENT follow-up, and they'll arrange for the audiometric testing and uh, further imaging as needed. Okay. And just, just to add to that, again, if there's anything that's not straightforward about the history, if they have anything that even smells a little bit more neurologic, mm-hmm. if they have something lateralizing, they have paresthesias in their face, there's, there's something that doesn't fit, fit with it, I think it's still reasonable to do some investigations in the ED. But if it's straightforward, sensorineural hearing loss of sudden onset, that's got nothing else going on, a normal exam, no other symptoms... I think it's completely reasonable to do zero investigations in the ER, treat them, and, and arrange for urgent follow-up. Okay, so you had mentioned uh, steroids and antivirals. Can you just run through for us what kind of medications and dosages you'd give? Yeah, so it's very similar to my patients with Bell's palsy. Again, there's the amount of evidence, unfortunately, is extremely limited in this patient population, even less uh, information than we have with Bell's palsy. But usually we'll give them fairly high-dose steroids, one milligram per kilo to a maximum of about 60, once a day for about 10 days. Again, there's not a lot of science behind it. Most of these patients do not require a taper. And then uh, an antiviral, either famcyclovir or valcyclovir, you can use acyclovir, but it's very difficult to dose in most patients. You need to use it five times a day. I know that I certainly could not be compliant with that kind of dosing regimen. No way. Uh, so famcyclovir, 500 milligrams, three times a day for, uh, for a week, or valcyclovir, uh, one gram, three times a day for a week. Those are all reasonable regimens of antivirals. And for patients that uh, may have major contraindications to steroids, there are studies that support tympanic membrane steroid injections that are also helpful and may work even up to 10 days after presentation. So you do those all the time, Oh, right? yes, all the time. <laughs> so I would uh, maybe have those patients seen even earlier by ENT, possibly the next day if, if possible, and they might consider a tympanic ster- steroid injection. Okay. In terms of the prognosis, you had mentioned that some people end up with permanent hearing loss. Can you tell us a little bit more detail about the prognosis of these patients, whether they're treated or not treated? So fortunately, uh, approximately two-thirds of patients with sudden sudden sensorineural hearing loss will experience recovery within a few weeks, but this recovery is not always complete. Prognosis is typically worse in older patients or those patients presenting with vertigo, and certainly patients that present with profound hearing loss across all frequencies have uh, very poor prognosis with uh, three-quarters having no recovery of hearing. Hmm. Okay. And so I guess this is something that's important to tell the patient on discharge, just so that they can manage their expectations that this is a pretty serious disease. Yeah. And I tell them that I'm starting them on these medications with the hopes that the majority of patients get better, maybe a few more get better on these medications, but there's still a good chance you know, that you may not have your full hearing back ever again. Hmm. So kind of similar to Bell's palsy. Very similar. Yeah.
I, I usually ask them if they think Jean Chrétien is good looking or not. <laughs> if they say yes, I say, well, you might end up looking like Jean Chrétien. Let's talk about the next case. Your resident presents you a case of a 67-year-old man, well-known to your department for alcohol-related emergencies, who comes in complaining of an increasingly sore throat and difficulty swallowing for three days. He reports a fever at home, no cough, and no shortness of breath. He has a history of COPD, MI, and sleep apnea, and his past surgical history includes a remote tonsillectomy. On exam, he's in no apparent distress. His vitals are normal with no fever. His ENT exam is negative. Your resident wants to do a rapid strep antigen swab, and if negative, send him home. So, Dr. Summer, what else do you want to know about this patient? So this case sounds a little bit concerning, obviously. Uh, One, the patient has a normal exam. I'd really want to know what a normal exam meant. Often we get presented with a normal exam, but it's important to find out what was actually examined. So in the, T exam, in the ENT exam, what was examined? Did they have adenopathy? Did they have swelling? Was there voice change? Was there strider? Was there trismus? Was there limitations of the movement of the neck or the extraocular movements? Certainly, I'd be very concerned in a patient with a normal exam, not even a little bit of redness in the throat. Okay, so let's go on with the case. The staff ED doc goes to see the patient, and upon introducing himself identifies that the patient has a strange-sounding voice. He notices that the patient is holding a cup and that he's spitting into it every few minutes. Examination of his oral cavity shows that the floor of his mouth is soft and he has normal tongue mobility. His pharynx is normal with no erythema or swelling. His posterior pharyngeal wall is not bulging. His neck is supple with no lymphadenopathy. There's no obvious crepitus or pain on palpation of the neck, and his neck range of motion is normal. So Dr. Summer, now that you have this added information, what's your differential diagnosis at this point? So we've kind of made certain things less likely and certain things more likely by that exam. But just to kind of keep it broad, uh, let's get a couple of the more benign things out of the way. So the patient may have uh, simple viral or bacterial pharyngitis, certainly, but I'd expect a little bit of something on the exam, a little bit of redness or discharge or petechiae or something. Um, even in the absence of tonsils, this guy's had a tonsillectomy, you can have lingular tonsillitis because they don't usually take out the lingular tonsils and you can't see that obviously on the exam. So that's still in the differential, but a more benign presentation anyway. Then there are some more worrisome diseases. So if you kind of think from the top up, you could have uvulitis, so inflammation of the uvula, but usually very visually apparent. You can see most people's uvulas when you examine them unless they have a significant degree of trismus. I'd be concerned about deep neck space infection, peritonsillar, peripharyngeal, or retropharyngeal abscesses. Now again, there are usually other findings on physical exam that would point to it. Trismus, limitation of neck extension in peripharyngeal and retropharyngeal abscesses, or you can see the bulging in the soft palate or the posterior oropharynx in the case of uh, retropharyngeal or peritonsillar abscesses, but something to keep in mind. Lidoxangina can present as a sore throat, but usually it presents as more submandibular swelling and pain, especially after dental procedures, obviously. 
bacterial tracheitis, mostly a disease of children, so less less uh, I would consider in this adult. But also these patients tend to present very sick, septic-looking, drooling, tripoding. Sometimes they'll have an element of strider, especially the children. Epiglottitis would definitely be a consideration, present very similar to this. They have pain, significant odynophagia, may have some voice changes. In adults, there's often a supraglottic component. The whole supraglottis is inflamed, so they do get some hoarseness or some voice change as well. Uh, And finally, angioedema of the larynx can sometimes present as pain just from the swelling of the actual edema. Dr. Vankovic, this patient was suspected of having epiglottitis. What do you look for on history and physical for patients who you might suspect have epiglottitis? So on history, most patients, you know, I would say more than 90% will complain of a sore throat or pain on swallowing. And you definitely want to think about this if the patient is complaining of a severe sore throat that's out of proportion to what you're finding on exam. They may have a fever, and often you'll find tenderness of their anterior neck. And of course, that classic hot potato voice, where they got a hot potato in their mouth like that. They can have hoarseness and drooling as well. And if they come in already very sick, they might have obvious strider or signs of respiratory compromise. Um, And you might see them in this sort of classic tripod or sniffing position. And that indicates severe inflammation and, of course, uh, impending airway obstruction. And they're often in this position because they're trying to open their airway by moving the inflamed and swollen uh, epiglottic structures forward. And that relieves that choking sensation they may, may complain of. Um, And the tongue and mandible are often protruding, especially in in children. The bottom line is um, adults might present with a severe sore throat, but a relatively normal oropharyngeal exam. And in fact, most adults will have a normal oropharynx on exam. So it's very important to to keep this in your differential. And usually with with adults, the progression is a lot slower than in children. So obviously we know that children don't get this uh, as much anymore since the Haemophilus influenza B vaccine. But uh, adults, it might take them over even 24 to 72 hours to get very sick as opposed to children where it could be even just a few hours. And it would be important uh, to mention that you don't want to attempt to visualize the epiglottis especially in children or in in adults who look like they are uh, having respiratory compromise because you might induce airway obstruction, especially in children, by increasing their anxiety or changing their position. Uh, So sometimes in really sick patients, you might be taking them right to the OR for direct visualization. But certainly in adults, it might be easier to try. I agree. I think in children, you know, we've been taught that if they, if you consider epiglottitis, which uh, like Dr. Ivankovic was saying, is a fairly rare in children now, much more common adult diagnosis. Uh, we've been taught to slowly back away and call for help because these are impending airway disasters. They have small airways, very floppy epiglottises. But in adults, it's a very different case. And I think actually visualizing the epiglottis in the adult is a great thing to do. Mm. Okay, so that leads nicely into protecting the airway. How do you decide who might need intubation to protect their airway in suspected epiglottitis? As opposed to children who have the small airways, adults need intubation for protection of their airway only in about 10% of cases. So for children, they often progress rapidly to severe obstruction in just a few hours. So most experts would agree for pediatrics that they get an artificial airway put in as soon as possible before they get to signs of significant respiratory distress. Uh, But for adults, you know, they can actually be watched uh, in a safe setting before jumping right to intubation. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, airway obstruction 
even though it's unusual, it can happen unpredictably at any course in the illness. So you want to be prepared. So you want to make sure that you've got your uh, intubation set up at the bedside. You might need to have your surgical airway ready. But for uh, most patients, close observation is going to be the course of management. And especially if there's an absence of dyspnea, that's a very good prognostic sign. But uh, it, it is still controversial as to how these patients are managed. And some Physicians would still advocate intubating all patients with epiglottitis. Uh, however, uh, as I was saying, I think this is not necessary in the majority of adults. An artificial airway, of course, is not without complications as well. So if you do have a patient that's in obvious respiratory distress with increasing strider um, and you're thinking they're going to need intubation, uh, you may elect to take them to the UR, hopefully in advance of them crashing. Because if they do need a tracheostomy, if you're unable to get to the intubation, um, you're going to have set up to do that right away. However, intubation is often challenging because of all the swelling of the supraglottis, the epiglottis, and all the surrounding structures. Uh, so, and failed attempts might lead to further uh, increase the swelling uh, and cause bleeding, which can then cause complete airway obstruction. These are these are predicted difficult airways. Absolutely, yeah. uh, and predicted to me in the setting that I work in, predicted difficult airway necessitates a call for help. And so if you're going to, if you predict that you're going to have to intubate these patients, whether they're striderous, dyspneic, or there's a reason that you're concerned because you visualize them and you think that they need a definitive airway, I would highly recommend that there should be several airway specialists in the room with you. ENT, anesthesia, these are patients that you should not shy away from calling for help. Definitely. And as I said, if you can get them to the OR, that would be ideal. And again, even early in the diagnosis, once you've made the diagnosis of epiglottitis using whatever technique you've had, my belief is that there should be a setup for uh, emergent cricothyrotomy at the bedside for all these patients because you don't know how they're going to progress early in their disease. I have a scalpel and a bougie and a setup beside every single one of these patients once they've been identified. So thankfully, most patients will not require intubation. But as Dr. Summer was saying, it's very important that you have everything ready. In an instant, things can change. So these patients need very close monitoring in your ED uh, and admission to ICU for observation. So if your ENT says, well, it might be a mild case of epiglottitis, well, they need to come in, they need to see the epiglottitis. And even if it is mild epiglottitis, it can progress very rapidly, very unpredictably. So they absolutely need close monitoring and I would say admission to ICU. Oh, I get by with a little help from my friends. Mm, I get high with a little help from my friends. Mm, gonna try with a little help from my friends. Let's back up a little bit and talk about the mild epiglottitis cases, which we see quite a few of compared to these, you know, disastrous airway emergencies. What's the role of a lateral soft tissue of the neck x-ray in helping you diagnose epiglottitis? Do you send all your patients with suspected mild epiglottitis for a soft tissue neck x-ray? What kind of accuracy does it have? What's the role of x-ray in epiglottitis? This is really pattern dependent. There's not a lot of data to suggest how we should be investigating these patients. I can tell you that my personal preference is that if I suspect epiglottitis in a patient, whether it's mild or more severe, uh, I like to see their epiglottis. So uh, my diagnostic test of choice is fiber optic nasopharyngoscopy in all these patients. I find it's quick. 
I don't need to send the patient to the x-ray department to have any tests done. I find it's the safest thing to do, and I get the best airway assessment I can by actually looking at their airway. And again, because this is an overwhelming disease of adults, the prevalence in children is something like half a case in every 100,000 now after universal immunizations, whereas we see about six or seven per 100,000 in adults, it's very safe to look at their airways. They've got rigid airways. It's very unlikely that you will precipitate uh, airway disaster. Now, if for whatever reason you don't have access to that equipment or you're not comfortable with it or you, ha you haven't used it very well before, then a soft tissue lateral is probably a reasonable thing to do uh, in those patients who you're not concerned about their airway, that you feel okay sending them out of the department to have an x-ray done. Uh, the sensitivities of a soft tissue lateral neck uh, for a thumbprint sign, for example, where you see just swelling of the epiglottis on the lateral film is somewhere in the low 90s reported on a number of case series. And again, it's not 100% specific to epiglottitis. You can get it with lingular tonsillitis can make it look that way too, or other inflammatory changes like angioedema. So the specificity is also probably in the high 80s and low 90s as well. Um, there's really nothing like looking at the actual airway that will give you the diagnosis. There are a number of signs that you can see on the uh, x-ray findings. So mostly, uh, most people will look for swelling or widening of the epiglottis or the classic thumbprint sign. You'll see some paravertebral soft tissue swelling, especially at the level of the hyoid bone. Um, there is also something described well in the literature called the vallecula sign where you follow, you know, you have to make sure that the patient has a closed mouth on the x-ray and then you follow the tongue to its base, which is usually around where the hyoid bone is. And there should be a nice little airspace between the base of the tongue and the epiglottis and that airspace should be parallel to the pharyngotracheal column of air. And that's called the vallecula sign, which has also been so shown to be a very sensitive indicator. In the absence of that little parallel airspace is very sensitive for epiglottitis. Okay, so we'll, we'll have some images on the, on the written summary. But suffice to say that x-ray is actually pretty good for epiglottitis, Although, if you can see it directly, of course, that's better. Yeah, x-ray is not bad. Again, for me, I think that nasal fiber optic, nasopharyngoscopy, not just for epiglottitis, but for many things, is a core eMERGE skill. Um, I'm going to put a shameless plug in for the course that I have been teaching for the past uh, three years at the North York General Emergency Medicine Update. If you haven't, if you're not comfortable with fiber optic nasopharyngoscopy, we do go through it very carefully uh, in the course. It'll be running again this year. Uh, to me, that's a core skill of emergency physicians. The other thing, um, for those of us trained in bedside ultrasound, there are there's more and more evidence coming out um, that you can use bedside ultrasound to assess the diameter uh, of the epiglottis. So that might be another bedside test that you can do. A few options. I like options. Good. So let's continue with the case here. The patient got a lateral soft tissue of the neck x-ray, which showed thickening of the epiglottitis with loss of the follicular airspace. He was started on IV ceftriaxone, IV clindamycin, and IV dexamethasone. On flexible nasopharyngoscope, his pharynx was normal. His epiglottis, however, was swollen and red and about twice the size of normal with about 25% airway obstruction. There was pooling of secretions. ENT was called, and although the patient was not imminently obstructing his airway, he was admitted to the ICU with scoping as needed. He was transferred from the ICU to the floor 36 hours later and sent home a couple of days later on cefixime and clindamycin. Dr. Ivankovic, what antibiotics would you give in the ED for adults with epiglottitis? In most cases, blood and throat cultures are negative. However, among the cases where a pathogen is identified, haemophilus influenza B is, 
is still the most common, but that still only accounts for less than 15% of all cases. So epiglottitis can be caused by a broad range of bacteria, viruses, and then combined viral bacterial infections, and even fungus, as well as non-infectious causes such as foreign bodies or caustic injuries. So you definitely need coverage for haemophilus influenza B, strep, staph, and potentially MRSA. And certainly in immunocompromised patients, you should consider Pseudomonas and Candida as a possibility. So typically I would start the patient on IV cefotaxime or ceftriaxone, and Vanco can be added if MRSA is suspected or in patients with severe sepsis. So we've covered epiglottitis in adults. Let's move on to simple pharyngitis. Pharyngitis is, of course... Very, very common, but only about 10% of adults with pharyngitis actually have strep throat, with the vast majority being viral and etiology. Nonetheless, studies show that 75% of adults with pharyngitis receive antibiotics. Recently, the pendulum seems to have swung towards no antibiotics for pharyngitis unless certain features are present, similar to otitis media and sinusitis. The most recent CDC guidelines, however, recommend giving empiric antibiotics for patients with a high Centaur score of 4. The Centaur score, just to remind you, is the one with one point for each of fever, tonsillar exudates, no cough, and tender anterior cervical lymphadenopathy. So that's the CDC guidelines. However, the IDSA guidelines recommend giving antibiotics only when you get a positive rapid antigen swab or throat culture. So there's a bit of discrepancy between the guidelines here, and there's a lot of practice variation on how people approach simple pharyngitis. Dr. Vankovic, how do you decide which patients with pharyngitis require a swab, which patients require the rapid strep swab, or what I call the not-so-rapid strep swab, because it seems forever to to come back sometimes, Uh, which patients require a throat culture, and which patients require antibiotics. And in particular, do you use the Centaur score or the newer McIsaac score, otherwise known as the modified Centaur score or the Toronto throat score? So both scores have been validated um, and unfortunately still not used in practice as much as they should be. Uh, the center, the more older, like the older uh, score, was developed about 30 years ago um, based on the evaluation of almost 300 adults at a single eMERGE. And its purpose was to help us differentiate who's got group A strep um, from the viral pharyngitis that we see. So the McIsaac score, also known, as you mentioned, as the Toronto throat score, which is the one I use, no bias because I'm from Toronto, but uh, it was derived from over 500 patients from a university-affiliated family medicine practice in Toronto. And it is very similar to the center score, except for it adjusts for age. So since younger patients are more likely to have group A strep than older patients, uh, the, the McIsaac score is calculated by adding one point to the center score for patients aged 3 to 14 and subtracting one point for those 45 and older because they're much less likely to, uh, to have a group A strep. So uh, patients get one point, as you mentioned, each for having no cough, swollen and tender cervical nodes, temperature greater than 38, or tonsillar exudate and swelling. Uh, and then, of course, plus or minus a point for their age. So if the patient scores a 0 or a 1, they get no testing and no antibiotic. If they score a 2 or a 3, they get a swab and treat, treatment based on that result. 
Now, if you don't have a rapid strep test in your ED, some sources will recommend treating even for a score of three, as there is about a 40% chance of strep. But most of the guidelines will still say, wait for those results. And if they are a score of four, then they get antibiotics without any testing. So if, if they have all four points, I should mention, they still only have about a 55% chance of a culture-positive strep throat. Uh, and a large proportion of these are chronic carriers. So, you know, we really shouldn't be testing on everybody because it should be based on a pretest probability. And that's why I think that the score is very important. Most rapid strep tests are 80 to 9% sensitive uh, compared to culture, which is about 90 to 95%. But they have an excellent specificity of 95%. My main issue is we can identify, you know, maybe 50% of the time we can identify the patients who have an infection. And so we're treating about double the number of patients that actually have the infection. If we do a swab, the false positive rate is exceedingly high because there are a lot of carriers. And in the end, what are we actually treating? Right? We're treating a fairly benign condition that is very unlikely to result in significant morbidity. Let's dig into that a bit deeper. When it comes to strep throat, what does the literature say about the effectiveness of the antibiotics in treating strep throat and its complications? You know, in particular, we always hear about preventing rheumatic fever and peritonsillar abscess and post-strep glomerular nephritis. You know, these antibiotics that we are giving to the people who really do have strep throat, do they really prevent these complications? I mean, that's a great question. And uh, things have really changed over time. I think the really dreaded complication that most people are concerned about is rheumatic fever. And rheumatic fever in the modern era in developed countries is a disease that has virtually vanished. There are exceedingly rare cases of rheumatic fever in North America and Europe for the past 50 to 60 years. Now, the question behind that is that because we've treated everybody with antibiotic, or because the strains of group A strep that we get are much less virulent. And nobody really knows the answer to that, but we're more and more leaning to the fact that probably these strains are less virulent, probably lead to less rheumatic fever. And it's been suggested that the number needed to treat to prevent a single case of rheumatic fever is somewhere between three and 4,000 cases. You have to treat a lot of benign strep throats to prevent one case of rheumatic fever if you're even doing that. Um, whereas the number needed to harm for an antibiotic, like amoxicillin, say, which is one of the most commonly prescribed antibiotics, is probably somewhere between 12 and 15. So the likelihood of missing work because of gastrointestinal side effects, C. diff infection, allergy, significant allergy, somewhere around 1 in 15. So you're going to be causing a lot of maybe not so significant harm, but something that may cause more hospital visits, lost work, for something you're very unlikely to prevent. Now, will it actually make you feel better is what most patients come in. They come in because, doctor, I've got a sore throat and I want to feel better faster because I've uh, got work to get to. I've, are you going to make them feel better? Maybe. There's one study that suggests that, or there are actually a couple studies that suggest that there is a shortening of duration of illness, but the shortening is only about a half a day. So you're going to gain 12, 16, maybe 18 hours of uh, symptom-free time, and it's only, and it's been done and randomized in patients that were not receiving any significant analgesia. Uh, so perhaps we should really be culturing those ones that are particularly sick or have high scores and not treating them until their culture results are positive, but giving analgesias to, analgesia to everyone so they can feel better. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the other complications, uh, for example, glomerulonephritis, there's no evidence to suggest that antibiotics can prevent that. Peritonsillar abscess, there's not a ton of evidence, but the fact is that most cases of peritonsillar abscess will actually present prior to treatment of their tonsillitis or pharyngitis. Um, so we don't actually even get a chance to prevent this most of the time. Uh, whether we can prevent it or not, giving antibiotics to uh, someone who's got positive culture or non-positive culture is really up in the air. So I guess that brings up the question, should we be giving antibiotics at all? That is a great question, and, uh, and I think that's really up for debate. And just like otitis media, where we found there's spontaneous resolution with very little side effects in most patients who aren't significantly ill, maybe we shouldn't be giving it, at, at least certainly not in the culture negative ones or the uncultured ones. Um, I've certainly shifted over the past 10 years in being a lot less interventional friendly in, uh, in pharyngitis. I'm, I'm much more likely to communicate with the patient, tell them that they're going to get better, that the antibiotics are more likely to cause harm than actual benefit. And most reasonable patients are quite happy with that, as long as they're getting something that's going to make them feel better in the form of a significant analgesia. Yeah, absolutely. We seem to think that the patient's main agenda is to get a prescription for antibiotics, when in fact the studies don't show that. From the patient's that do list antibiotics as high priority, their reasoning is that they think it's gonna help them with the pain. So there was a a survey done of about 300 patients in Belgium with sore throat uh, who visited their GP, and they actually ranked antibiotics 11th out of 13 items that they were seeking. And the most three commonly reported reasons they had for a physician visit was number one, to figure out what's going on, so establish the cause of their symptoms, And number two was pain relief. And uh, number three is to receive information about uh, the expected course. So exactly what Dr. Summer was saying, you want to tell them sort of the benign nature of their illness, uh, what they could expect in terms of symptoms, why they don't need an antibiotic, and talk to them about uh, pain, pain management. And there is some evidence that ibuprofen is a bit more effective than Tylenol for pharyngitis. Uh, and this was based on 400 milligrams of ibuprofen TID versus acetaminophen 1,000 milligrams TID. So I generally recommend uh, NSAIDs in patients who don't have any contraindications. And lozenges and other throat coating agents can also help a little bit compared to placebo. And certainly sort of lozenges or tablets that you can suck on gets a higher level of ingredients in the mouth and throat. Uh, and lost, it lasted longer, actually, compared to sprays or gargles. It sounds like I could use one right now, sorry. <laughs> anyway, there's no good large uh, randomized controlled trials uh, that show one lozenge or spray is better than the other. Um, but small studies have shown that they are effective compared to, to placebo. So I, I certainly um, tell patients that it's worth a try. I just want to back up a bit. I don't want to give our listeners the impression that they don't need to give antibiotics to anyone with with pharyngitis or with proven strep throat? So I think just to summarize that, I would say for now, the guidelines are still two or three, wait for the swab, four, treat. Okay, so the CDC guidelines, absolutely. And, you know, if you want to, or you can use the uh, IDSA guidelines, let's say, uh, you know, four, swab and treat. Don't swab anyone with a low score because they're much more likely to have a false positive that you don't need to treat anyway. Um, So really, in summary, they're saying if they have a Centaur score of two, three, or four, swab. Delaying antibiotics for up to nine days will have no impact on disease outcome. Um, So don't, don't be worried that you're not starting their antibiotics immediately so they're going to get better. 
that's completely okay. They can wait for two days for the results. As long as you have a system in your emergency department that it will allow you to follow up or your department to follow up on all these culture results. So just one caveat to my very non-interventional approach for these patients. Uh, certainly if you have a patient who's at very high risk for complications, whether they be immunosuppressed, coming from an undeveloped region recently, or you're working in an underdeveloped region, uh, or whether there's a significant history of uh, valvular heart disease or rheumatic heart disease, you may want to consider treating those patients a little bit different than the guidelines uh, that we've laid out earlier. Those patients don't really fall into your general patient category. The one thing we haven't talked about yet in terms of treatment for pharyngitis, which always comes up, is the role for dexamethasone or prednisone in the treatment of pharyngitis. Dr. Vankovic, uh, what does the literature say about whether we should be giving steroids for pharyngitis? So there are a couple of systematic reviews that basically found steroids did seem uh, effective at relieving pain in acute pharyngitis with no significant adverse effects. In one of the reviews, there was only a four and a half hour reduction in duration of symptoms, and that was in the strep-proven patients. Uh, in the other review, there were issues with the studies not having standardized the use or doses of the other co-medications. Um, so it was hard to, to clarify whether or not it was the steroid itself causing the improvement in, in pain or possibly the ibuprofen and acetaminophen that patients were also receiving. So the, the bottom line for now, though, is while steroids might provide a small benefit for pain relief, we need more good evidence. And for now, they should not be used routinely for patients in acute pharyngitis. Dr. Summer, penicillin is the antibiotic choice for strep throat in most centers in Canada. When should we use IV or IM penicillin as opposed to PO? And I'll just reiterate, the penicillin is absolutely the drug of choice. Even in the, the States, the CDC says that there is no significant group A strep resistance to penicillin in North America. So this is our drug of choice. It's simple penicillin. Almost always I will use it orally. In almost every case, I'll use oral penicillin, except for if you have an allergic reaction, except in patients who, one, I don't think will complete their course, and I really think they need to complete their course. So patients who have a family history or personal history of rheumatic heart disease, um, so the family history is maybe they have some kind of genetic setup to have rheumatic, uh, rheumatic heart disease. So if they have a family history, a personal history, and they're unlikely to complete their course of oral penicillin, then probably a single dose of IM or IV penicillin would be a reasonable thing to do. And if the patient is allergic to penicillin, what's your next go-to medication? Well, the CDC would tell you that it's erythromycin. Personally, most patients can't tolerate erythromycin. It's got horrible GI side effects. So uh, one of the other macrolides may be a reasonable choice, uh, clarithromycin or azithromycin. A first-generation cephalosporin like suffixium would be a reasonable choice as long as the penicillin allergy isn't uh, an anaphylactic-type penicillin reaction. Uh, if they've had some kind of skin eruption or something like that, then I still think a cephalosporin would be a very reasonable choice of antibiotic, although you'll get a phone call from the pharmacist for sure to, to double-check it. Uh, and then clindamycin is also a reasonable choice of antibiotic. Now, in all this talk about pharyngitis, we haven't talked about mono. There are going to be a subset of these patients who present with pharyngitis who actually have mono. Uh, and that brings up the question, do we care? Do we chase down? Should we be ordering mono tests in the emergency department? Dr. Ivankovic, what's your take on, on mono in the ED? So I do order monospots in the ED in select patients. 
so while there is definitely some overlap in symptoms, mono typically presents in 12 to 24-year-olds. Um, you know, they may compare, complain of extreme fatigue, headaches, lymphadenopathy, uh, and often it's uh, posterior cervical chain lymphadenopathy as, a, as opposed to anterior. Um, and sometimes there's patients that complain of just the fever and lymphadenopathy without the sore throat. So because it changes how I might counsel these patients on prognosis uh, and that they can expect to be symptomatic for, you know, on average 16 days compared to strep pharyngitis, I usually will want to know if it is mono um, versus just a, a, a plain uh, pharyngitis. So I will order a monospot in, in these patients. The other group of patients that I would definitely order a monospot in is pregnant patients because in pregnant women, you do have to think about the possibility of CMV and toxo, which are torch infections, as being a cause of mono. So I'm reassured if I suspect they have mono and my mono spot comes back positive, because that tells me it's likely EB, it is EBV and not one of the torch infections. The false negative rate of a mono spot is about 25% in the first week and 5 to 10% in the second week. Um, because the monospot detects antibodies to EBV, so it can be falsely negative if it's done too early. Uh, and typically, the, the antibody levels peak at around week two after primary infection. But the overall sensitivity of the monospot is about 85%, and the specificity is over 99%. With the caveat that a quarter of the time, roughly, it's still going to be negative, and I'm still going to tell them that they have mono. So just be aware that even though the monospot is negative, I just had a patient last week who I said, you know, your blood test is negative. If you want, you can come back in another week and we can repeat it and it'll be positive because I'm almost certain that you've got mono. So that's a good point. I mean, I, I don't tend to do these uh, on a history of one to two days of sore throat. Generally, if they've come in and have had sore throat for several days at least, you know, five days or more, um, then I'm more likely to do a, a monospot. Okay, so the right age group, you know, a teenager comes in. Uh, they've got posterior big fat lymph nodes. They've been sick for more than just a few days. You might consider doing a monospot in those patients. Yeah, they I may mean, have hepatosplenomegaly on exam, less likely, but certainly mm -hmm. another thing that went. Mm -hmm. my, my practice is that usually they come to the emergency room before five days. Almost all the time, it's within five days of their, their symptom onset. And if they have a family doctor, I tell them, look, there's a possibility you have mono. Um, follow up with your doctor in a week and get a mono test because it'll be a lot more accurate then. Than now. Than now, yeah. And that helps with flow in the emergency department as For well. So we've talked about simple pharyngitis, strep throat, and mono. Let's move on to talking about peritonsillar abscess. We had touched upon it before. Dr. Summer, first of all, how good are we at diagnosing peritonsillar abscesses clinically? We are pretty good. The, the problem is that what is the gold standard for diagnosis? And most people will tell you that the gold standard for diagnosis is CT scanning. And there's really no study comparing emergency physicians' gestalt diagnosis from to CT scanning. So we're pretty good. Now, sometimes we overcall it and sometimes we undercall it. So we undercall it in patients who we suspect may have just pharyngitis and perhaps they have a small abscess that is not there. And then we may overcall it in patients who have peritonsillar cellulitis, just a lot of swelling in the area, and they don't have a collection there. But do I have a number? No, I don't. 
um, we've gotten better at using other modalities to, to make the diagnosis. C CT scanning uh, compared to, for example, point-of-care ultrasound using an endocavitary probe, uh, point-of-care ultrasound probably has a sensitivity in, uh, in the 90s, in the low 90s compared to CT scanning. So it's pretty, pretty good at making mm -hmm. the diagnosis. You know, strep throat being a lot more common in younger patients, we've got to think about the radiation dose with a CT scan. So, I mean, I can't remember the last time I ordered a CT scan for suspected peritonsillar abscess. Agreed. That's a, when it's another deep space neck that infection. infection. Yeah. That's when yeah. I might order a CT scan. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, if it were me and I had a possible peritonsillar abscess, I would much rather have either an ultrasound or uh, the other tool, which is uh, an attempted aspiration or drainage, which is the other modality of diagnosis, essentially. So some of these patients with peritonsillar abscesses won't be obvious on clinical exam. If you're trained to do ultrasound, that's an option. CT scan is an option, but you have to be wary of the radiation dose in young patients. And then the other option is just to go for it to see if there's any pus that comes out of the, the area around the tonsil. So it sounds like out of those available options, CT scan, ultrasound, or just going for it, if you can do ultrasound, ultrasound seems like the least potentially harmful. What do the studies show about how good ultrasound is at helping us diagnose and treat peritonsillar abscess? So again, the uh, ultrasound is about 90, 92, 93% sensitive at picking it up, and it's quite specific. The other great advantage of ultrasound is that it can show you the vascular structures that theoretically you could get into if you were to attempt an aspiration, although I'm going to add this, that there has been no zero documented cases of eMERGE physicians causing significant vascular injury by doing peritonsillar abscess drainage. You know, it's funny, I, my, my brother is an ENT, and we were talking about peritonsillar abscess drainage, and a lot of the eMERGE physicians in his area do not do them. And he was telling him, you know, you guys are very happy to stick a big old needle in someone's jugular vein, and it sits right next to their carotid, but putting a needle into someone's Soft palate seems very difficult for some reason, even though it's actually quite a bit further away than to, the, to someone's carotid. But the ultrasound does help you see the rest of the anatomy. And if the patient doesn't have significant trismus and you can access uh, their intraoral cavity enough, you can actually do ultrasound-guided drainage of their abscess. So that's the role of ultrasound. Let's just back up a bit and talk about when you would suspect a peritonsillar abscess as opposed to simple pharyngitis. We had mentioned that sometimes it's hard to tell. Sometimes we can miss an abscess uh, when they have a clinically benign-looking exam. What are some of the things on physical exam and history that can clue us into the fact that this might be a peritonsillar abscess and not just simple pharyngitis? So a lot of times these patients will come in complaining of ear pain because of referred pain. Um, they may also have a thickened or muffled voice or that hot potato voice we talked about earlier. Uh, and they may also have trismus. And on physical exam, one of the distinguishing features is that they'll have asymmetric tonsils with deviation of the uvula away from the affected side. Of course, there are rare, rare cases of bilateral peritonsillar abscesses where that sign might not be as, uh, as useful, but for the most part, uh, uh, that'll help you clinch the diagnosis. Um, but unfortunately, clinical exam findings are only about 80% sensitive, um, but ultrasound can bring this up to 90% with 100% specificity. So let's say you've diagnosed your peritonsillar abscess clinically, or in a case where you suspect it might be there, but you don't see anything, you stick the ultrasound there and there is an abscess there. 
how do you actually go through the procedure of draining the abscess in the ED? Dr. Summer, can you just run through for us uh, your pearls of wisdom when it comes to draining peritonsal or abscesses? This is one of my favorite procedures. <laughs> it's so satisfying. Most patients can tolerate this procedure awake, but in a few very anxious, hesitant patients, uh, procedural sedation is a reasonable option. Uh, there are two studies in the literature looking at the safety of procedural sedation for peritonsillar abscess, uh, one using ketamine, one using midazolam. Both have shown that it's safe, but again, these are very small patient populations and certainly not uh, powered to pick up uh, significant adverse reactions from the anesthetic. But every once in a while, I would use ketamine uh, to sedate the patients to hopefully maintain their airway reflexes intact. Most of the time, my patients will be awake without sedation. I have them sitting in the ENT chairs, so they're sitting upright because it's much easier to do them sitting upright. And I make sure that they have the neck or the head uh, of the ENT chair up so they're not running away from you when you're doing the procedure. Preparing the patient is critical. Next, I set up my tools. So the important thing to set up are mostly the needle and the scalpel that I'll be using to make the incision. And I create guards so I don't penetrate too deeply into the soft palate, uh, thereby possibly injuring the carotid artery. So I just cut the needle guards off at about a centimeter and then I replace them back onto the needle. So I take them off, cut about a centimeter off and then replace them back onto the needle. And that way it's guarding so I can't actually go deeper than about a centimeter uh, into the soft palate. And we uh, have uh, disposable scalpels at the two sites that I work at. And so I actually take the sheath off the disposable scalpel and I cut that off as well to a little bit under a centimeter and replace that onto the scalpel too. And that way I've got a guard on the scalpel so I can't go too deep on the scalpel as well. Next thing I do is I set up my lighting. Ideally, I like to have a headlamp so both my hands are free to manipulate the intraoral space. Another great tip is to use uh, either a Macintosh blade with a light source attached on it to both be a tongue depressor and a light source. Uh, and a cool tip would be to use a video scope, which allows you to both uh, sh see what you're doing using the light source from the video scope, and it lets you project it onto a screen so you can teach it or you can watch a trainee do it as they uh, as they're doing their trainage, because it's very tough to see into the intraoral space for somebody else. There's really just enough room for one person to look at, I find often. Now, once I've got it set up, so I've got my needle, my knife, my light source, a tongue depressor of some kind, be it a laryngoscope uh, or just a plain old tongue depressor. Uh, and then I also like to have uh, curved hemostats to allow some blunt dissection. I've got all my stuff set up. I usually get the patient to hold the suction so they can help and feel empowered in the whole process. Uh, and then I anesthetize. I usually topicalize with just spray lidocaine first. So I give the, the posterior oropharynx a couple of sprays uh, and then I'll inject about 2% lidocaine with epinephrine into the area that I think I'll be incising, usually just superior and medial to the superior pole of the tonsil. That's typically the most common spot, but you can judge where you think the most fluctuant spot will be by gently touching it. I'll inject a good one to two cc's, first just superficially raising a bleb and then a little bit deeper as well. And then I walk away for a couple of minutes. I let the lidocaine has already worked, but the epinephrine hasn't done its job yet. So I let the epinephrine work and that way I can have a fairly bloodless pr procedure usually. After they've been anesthetized reasonably and they're ready for the procedure, 
I usually just make an incision. Now, some people prefer to aspirate first, so they'll aspirate and try to find the as- uh, try to find the abscess using an 18 gauge needle with a guard. But my preference is to make an incision and then try to find the abscess if I need to uh, with blunt dissection. So I'll usually make about uh, one centimeter incision, superior and medial to the superior pole of the tonsil, usually a lateral or diagonal incision. And then if I haven't hit pus, which you do probably, I'd say, a quarter of the time with your initial incision, then I will start dissecting with my uh, hemostat inferiorly and laterally to see if I can express the pus that way. And that's when you usually get it, I have to say. It's usually not with the first incision. It's usually with the dissection. Um, It's very satisfying. The patients usually feel an instant relief and a horrible taste in their mouth when that pus starts coming out. Uh, And then you get them to suction, help you suction the rest of the pus out. After you've suctioned a little bit, I usually go back in and just gently push on the abscess, make sure that you've gotten as much of the pus out as you can, and you're done. One other little tip is that uh, sometimes it's very difficult to get, uh, especially like a 10cc syringe, into the intraoral space because the patients have a significant degree of trismus. So if you take a long spinal needle, for example, from an LP kit, sometimes it's easier to actually access the, the abscess either for drainage or even to anesthetize the area. This is our last case. A 24-year-old man comes in complaining of diffuse, crampy abdominal pain and vomiting. He states that he's had a similar presentation multiple times in the past, but never this severe. He denies any past medical history other than recurrent abdominal pain. His pain is severe, and he has impressive physical exam findings with tachycardia, blood pressure of 88 on 50, and a diffusely tender abdomen, but he doesn't have any peritoneal signs. You do a quick ED abdominal ultrasound and find a moderate amount of free fluid. He's sent for a CT abdomen, which shows significant bowel edema and confirms that there is free fluid. On return from CT, you notice that he has extremely swollen lips. So Dr. Summer, what's the most likely diagnosis here and how worried are you about this patient? Well, you know, clearly with the recurrent attacks, this patient's got to be a drug seeker. (laughs) Um, It looks like, you know, from the edema of both the bowels and now the lips, we're looking at some kind of angioedema. And, you know, if he's got recurrent attacks, he's probably got hereditary or familial angioedema of some kind. Uh, And hereditary angioedema can lead to significant complications. Um, It's in the literature quotes, a mortality rate of somewhere around 30%. And those are almost all due to asphyxiation from laryngeal edema. Okay, so let's dig into a little bit more about what angioedema is and how you differentiate angioedema from a classic histamine-related allergic reaction that we see almost daily in the emergency room. So angioedema is really just soft tissue swelling or swelling of the subcutaneous tissues, uh, which can be a component of a variety of different uh, disease manifestations. Uh, It can be part of a classic allergic reaction. So a a classic allergic or anaphylactic reaction can have angioedema as a component of it, in addition to urticaria, airway compromise, wheezing, hypotension, gastrointestinal effects. So angioedema can be an element of that. But there are other disease processes that can lead to angioedema as well. 
probably the most common angioedema that is uh, acquired, acquired angioedema, is ACE inhibitor-related angioedema, uh, which is caused not by histamine like an allergic reaction, but it's thought to be due to uh, bradykinin, so that the ACE enzyme yeah, catabolizes bradykinin. So when you have ACE inhibitors around, you got a little more bradykinin sticking around and it causes your vessels to be more permeable. And then you get this idiopathic swelling for whatever reason. Uh, there's also this uh, disease called hereditary angioedema, which it sounds like this patient probably has, where you have recurrent attacks of angioedema in various body parts, in their GI tracts, in their airways, in their limbs, in their genitals, uh, and in their larynx, which potentially could be fatal. And it's due to mutations in the C1 esterase enzyme or the C1 inhibitor enzyme where it's dysfunctional and just causes this cascade of inflammatory reaction, again, leading to production of bradykinin and swelling. Okay, so to think about this simply, angioedema just describes this soft tissue or subcutaneous swelling, and you can see angioedema in the classic allergic reaction, you can see it in hereditary angioedema, where they won't have some of the symptoms of a classic allergic reaction, but they'll have a history of recurrent episodes of this soft tissue swelling. And you can see it in ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema that also does not have the cl- some of the classic. That's right. You wouldn't expect them to have the urticaria, the itching, or any of the uh, lower airway or GI effects that you would um, with uh, a classic anaphylaxis or anaphylactoid-type reaction. So that being said, what do you look for specifically on history and physical for patients who come in with swollen lips, who don't have urticaria, for example? So in patients who present with uh, isolated angioedema, uh, history is really important, uh, mostly to find out whether they've had previous attacks, whether there's a family history of previous attacks, because hereditary angioedema is uh, autosomal dominant. So almost always there will be another affected family member. That can be a big clue as to whether they have it. And certainly to see what medications the person is on, because again, the most common acquired angioedema is due to ACE inhibitors. Uh, ARBs also can cause angioedema, but they're far less common uh, in in that respect. And I just want to jump in and say that patients can uh, be on the ACE inhibitor years before it can trigger angioedema. So even if it's not a new medication, the ACE inhibitor can certainly be the cause. Absolutely. And and patients will often say, you know, I've been on that for three years. I can't Mm -hmm. be the problem. It's the problem. So, So a good medication history, history specifically of recurrent attacks, family history, And then physical exam is obviously really important in these patients, Uh, most importantly if they have any kind of airway compromise because airway airway compromise and asphyxiation uh, in the hereditary angioedema is the number one cause of mortality. So you got to get a good idea of what their airway is like. One, can they talk? Are they are they able to, to move air? Is there strider? All the usual things that we'd look for uh, for signs of any airway compromise. Are they dyspneic? Are they hoarse? You can ask them if they subjectively have had any voice change, even though you may not have heard it. You can just do a simple oral examination, make sure their uvula or their tongue isn't swollen. Uh, One nice tip is to get them to say the letter E in a high-pitched voice, and if they're able to do that, they're less likely to have laryngeal edema. And now I'm going to go back to another point that I've made earlier in the talk. Fiber optic nasopharyngoscopy is probably a great thing to do on these patients if you're even a little bit concerned about their larynx. The American Association of Academic Emergency Physicians suggests that if the patient has no edema on nasal. 
fiber optic nasopharyngoscopy on their larynx that they're almost completely unlikely to, to have it later or, or have morbidity associated to uh, asphyxiation from laryngeal edema. So it's a great thing to know whether their larynx is involved. If they've got any kind of hoarseness or anything pointing to laryngeal involvement, you got to have a look. And then the other things are, you know, just do the rest of your history and physical. So obviously a great set of vital signs. Many of these patients will present with some abnormality in their vitals, specifically hypotension, sometimes from third spacing, sometimes because this is actually an anaphylactic reaction that's masquerading a simple angioedema. Uh, abdominal exam, assessing for tenderness. Many of these patients with hereditary angioedema or bowel edema will have a very surgical feeling belly. That'll be an excruciating pain. Uh, and then just uh, doing a good chest exam, assessing for any uh, wheezing or lower airway involvement. Okay. So as opposed to the classic allergic reaction, uh, these patients usually aren't itchy. There's an absence of rash. They're usually not wheezy. Those are some of the differentiating factors That's there. That's right. So you wouldn't really expect any other the classical histamine-related causes of, urtic, of uh, allergic reactions. So yes, no rash, no wheezing, no coryza, rhinorrhea, no diarrhea or vomiting. From that, though, the hereditary angioedemas will present with profound belly pain if they have bowel edema. Okay. And Dr. Ivankovic, what clinical features are associated with the need for a definitive airway in these patients? So there was actually a single-center retrospective review of patients with angioedema admitted over an 11-year period um, by issue and all, and they found that the following factors were associated with increased risk of need for definitive airway. So number one, voice changes. Number two, hoarseness. Number three, stridor. And fourth, dyspnea. So if any of those are involved, there's a, a better chance that they might require a definitive airway. And they basically broke patients' presentations down into four stages. So stage one was where they just had swelling of their face and lips. Uh, stage two was where they had soft palate edema. And those, so both stages one and two are treated um, as outpatients on the ward. And then stage three was lingual edema. And typically those patients required ICU admission. And in their review, 7% of these required airway interventions. And the last stage is laryngeal edema, and all these patients were admitted to the ICU, and almost a quarter of them required airway intervention. If you do have to intubate these patients, you might consider awake nasal intubation and, of course, be prepared for a surgical airway. It's critical if you are going to consider intubating these patients. Again, these are predicted difficult airways. Absolutely. Call for help. Have the most experienced and best operator there because any trauma to that larynx is going to be a precipitant to further edema. So one shot. You got one shot to mm -hmm. get this right. Be prepped with the neck because you may need to do a definitive surgical airway in the neck. Double setup for all these patients. Multiple operators in the room. So part of your assessment is identifying whether this is a classic allergic reaction, histamine-related reaction, versus hereditary angioedema, versus a medication-induced angioedema. You were mentioning that ACE inhibitors are the most common cause of the medication-induced angioedema. What do our listeners need to know about ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema? Patients who present with isolated angioedema are very commonly going to be ACE-related or medication-related. Most of these will develop it early on in their course of treatment, but a significant minority will also get angioedema years later, like Dr. Ivankovic was saying. So almost certainly this is going to be related. If they're on an ACE inhibitor and they come in with isolated angioedema, almost certainly it's going to be ACE-related. Most of these patients have a benign course. 
Uh, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of medication that we can give that's going to reverse their course. Okay. Well, that leads us nicely into how you treat angioedema in the emergency department. Most of us are familiar with how we treat classic allergic reactions. We're not going to talk about that specifically. Let's talk more about the patients with hereditary angioedema and ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema. Dr. Summer, can you just review for us how you would treat this patient that we've been talking about, the belly pain, and now has uh, swollen lips? So if he just has belly pain and swollen uh, swollen lips, then I make sure that he's in a reasonable setting where I can do a proper assessment of his airway. So he probably be need to, need to be in an area with monitors, uh, oxygen available, staffing available that he can have a proper airway assessment done. I would probably assess his airway using flexible nasopharyngoscopy. If he had no indication for intubation, then I would continue along medical treatment. Now, if he did have a reason for concern, like he had laryngeal edema, even a little bit, I would consider doing prophylactic intubation at that point, because you really don't want to intubate after the fact or after the larynx has gotten so edematous that you can't get anything in there. At that point, I'd call for help, get the double set up, uh, make sure that I'm prepped to do a surgical airway, uh, and then have the most experienced operator attempt either oral, uh, assisted, endotracheal intubation, or uh, fiber optic nasal intubation in the wake patient. If I am just going to do medical treatment, then you can do things. So epinephrine probably helps most of these angioedema patients, irrespective of the cause. It's probably a transient effect in a lot of those patients, so because it, it causes just some vasoconstriction, just general vasoconstriction. So you can give IM epinephrine like you would for an allergic reaction. 0.5 milligrams would be a reasonable dose to start with, and it may actually cause some localized vasoconstriction that will give you a little bit of benefit in the short term. I sometimes will use nebulized uh, epinephrine as well to just guide it to the area where I want it to work. So if they have intraoral swelling, I will give them nebulized epinephrine as well for what it's worth, despite the fact that there's no data to suggest this is beneficial anyway. That's just my thing. And then if I know the cause of their angioedema, like if I know they have hereditary angioedema or their history is very suggestive of hereditary angioedema, there are medications that have been shown to be helpful in this situation. Uh, Because they have a deficiency of uh, C1 uh, inhibitor or C1 esterase, you can essentially give them concentrated C1 esterase. So there are two uh, medications in Canada that are concentrated C1 uh, esterase or C1 inhibitor. I've had several patients come into the ED, one who I knew had hereditary angioedema and several that I had, I was very suspicious for hereditary angioedema. And it's amazing. You give a single dose. The trade names of the medications are Barinert and Synrise, I believe, are available in Canada. And within 20 to 30 minutes, their angioedema is completely reversed. It's like magic. Now, if you don't have uh, C1 esterase or C1 inhibitor concentrated form, then fresh frozen plasma has C1 esterase in it, along with a number of other enzymes. So you can give fresh frozen plasma two to four units of fresh frozen plasma and likely have a very similar effect. And just to mention, fresh frozen plasma, everybody knows, is a blood product. Uh, Barinard or Synrise is also a blood product. It's derived from uh, human C1 esterase, uh, so the patient needs to be consented in a reasonable manner, although, again, the risks are extremely low of any kind of contagion. Now, these aren't cheap drugs. I believe a single dose is about between four and $5,000. 
But in the setting of airway compromise, I would say that that's probably worth it, having no affiliation with any of the drug companies that uh, produce these. I think it's a reasonable course of action if you have it available. Now, a lot of us have been traditionally giving antihistamines, steroids, H2 blockers, so H1 and H2 blockers for many of these patients. And unfortunately, because they're not histamine-related reactions, if, they're, if they've got hereditary angioedema or if they've got ACE inhibitor angioedema, there's very little to no role for H1, H2 blockers or steroids in these patients. They don't benefit from it, unfortunately. If you're not sure, then I think that's a reasonable thing to do. You're going to cause very little harm by giving these medications. But if you're fairly certain that you've got ACE inhibitor-related or hereditary angioedema, then it's not really going to help you. Now, glucagon in the patients who are on beta blockers, because they're going to have a blunted effect to the epinephrine, glucagon would be a reasonable thing to give in patients already on beta blockers. And you'd probably want to get, at least give a milligram, if not two to three milligrams as a trial to see if they get any benefit from that. There are other medications that have been approved in a number of other jurisdictions for treatment of hereditary angioedema or angioedema as a result of hereditary angioedema. As far as I know, though I may be wrong, uh, they haven't been approved in Canada yet, but uh, there are bradykinin inhibitors and other medications that, frankly, I don't really understand the mechanism of uh, that have been shown to be a benefit in acute attacks and in prophylaxis. So just in summary, there are really, if you, if you want to break it down or simplify it, uh, I kind of see it as three different types of angioedema. You have your allergic uh, angioedema, which we've all become quite comfortable with. So you treat with epinephrine, absolutely. H1 blockers, H2 blockers, uh, steroids, IV fluid, oxygen, and beta agonists as necessary. There's ACE inhibitor angioedema, which is mostly bradykinin-related, so antihistamines really have no role. And the majority of treatment uh, above and beyond epinephrine, which works for all of these, is really supportive in airway management and waiting for it to get better after you've discontinued the ACE inhibitor. And finally, there is hereditary angioedema, where, again, you can give epinephrine to help with a little bit of vasoconstrictor and then giving concentrated uh, C1 esterase, uh, Baronert, or um, Synrise in Canada uh, are the medical treatment modalities of choice. And I understand that there are bradykinin inhibitors that have been FDA-approved in the States, as well as recombinant protein medications that have been FDA approved that can be used for some types of angioedema, but in Canada, these aren't available. Right now, those aren't an option for us, but I'm sure uh, down the road, these may be options and maybe they'll work for uh, all categories or some of them. So this patient with the severe belly pain and the swollen lips, a nasopharyngoscope was done, which showed a mild amount of laryngeal edema. He was moved to the resuscitation room. Uh, All the supportive measures were put in place and he received C1 esterase, which resolved his angioedema within about half an hour. This brings up the question of the disposition of patients with angioedema. Dr. Ivankovic, which patients with angioedema can be discharged home, and what would you send them home on? So for the most part, um, these patients are all going to be observed in the ED for a minimum of four to six hours after their peak clinical uh, uh, presentation. 
So for patients that came in with what we think is an allergic type of angioedema, I would send them on the sort of classic cocktail of an EpiPen, an H1 receptor antagonist, an H2 receptor antagonist, so your antihistamines and a short course of steroids. And I would also advise them to get a medical alert bracelet. And then for your ACE inhibitor-induced angioedemas, the most important thing is to make sure the patient actually stops the medication. So if they've brought their pill bottle, especially if it's an older patient, I will want to take that from them so they know that uh, that's the one they're not supposed to be on anymore and write down on a piece of paper the name of their medications, the name of the medication, sorry, I want them to stop uh, to make sure that they don't accidentally keep taking it. And so for these patients, I would still give them a prescription for uh, an EpiPen in case they do suddenly get uh, any sort of an increase in their symptoms uh, that they can uh, give themselves an injection before coming back to hospital. Sorry, for the hereditary angioedema, these patients, again, even after they've significantly improved after their esterase inhibitor, I would observe them in the eMERGE for four to six hours. And if they're still doing well, we can send them home. I would send them home and making sure that they get appropriate follow-up with an allergist. Yeah, there, there are testing. There's testing that can be done to confirm the diagnosis. They take uh, levels of C1, active levels of C1. And then for patients with heavy disease burden, like some patients are going to have attacks every week or every few days, there are actually prophylaxis that they can take to try to prevent recurrent illness. Um, alkylated androgens like uh, danazole, for example, have been, treat, have been used to treat them, uh, as well as uh, the magic drug, which is uh, tranexamic acid, uh, because, again, it's part of this whole inflammatory fibrinolytic ca- uh, cascade also can be used as prophylaxis. So if it's a known patient who's got a heavy disease burden, you may even consider starting these, uh, these drugs or at least making sure they have reasonable follow-up so someone else can start them. And some form of alert bracelet uh, to say that either got anaphylaxis, hereditary angioedema, because it's great to know and sometimes these patients can present comatose. So that about wraps it up for this month's episode. Next month, we're going to have the return of Dr. David McKinnon and Dr. Mike Brzezowski, who we had on, I think it was the fourth episode, we did a monstrous more than three-hour episode on trauma, and we're going to look at all the latest evidence since that last episode when it comes to managing trauma in the emergency department. So until next time, take it easy.